Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Book 2nd, Chapter 4 of The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 2nd, Chapter 4 the inconveniences of following a pretty woman through the streets in the evening. Gringoire set out to follow the gypsy at all hazards. He had seen her, accompanied by her goat, take to the Rue de la Coutellerie. He took the Rue de la Coutellerie. Why not? he said to himself. Gringoire, a practical philosopher of the streets of Paris, had noticed that nothing is more propitious to reverie than following a pretty woman without knowing whither she is going. There was, in this voluntary abdication of his free will, in this fancy submitting itself to another fancy, which suspects it not, a mixture of fantastic independence and blind obedience, something indescribable, intermediate between slavery and liberty, which pleased Gringoire a spirit essentially compound, undecided and complex, holding the extremities of all extremes, incessantly suspended between all human propensities, and neutralizing one by the other. He was fond of comparing himself to Mahomet's coffin, attracted in two different directions by two lodestones, and hesitating eternally between the heights and the depths, between the vaults and the pavement, between fall and ascent, between zenith and nadir. If Gringoire had lived in our day, what a fine middle course he would hold between classicism and romanticism! But he was not sufficiently primitive to live three hundred years, and tis a pity. His absence is a void which is but too sensibly felt to-day. Moreover, for the purpose of this following passers-by, and especially female passers-by in the streets, which Gringoire was fond of doing, there is no better disposition than ignorance of where one is going to sleep. So he walked along, very thoughtfully, behind the young girl, who hastened her pace and made her goat trot as she saw the bourgeois returning home, and the taverns, the only shops which had been open that day, closing. After all, he half thought to himself, she must lodge somewhere. Gypsies have kindly hearts. Who knows? And in the points of suspense which he placed after this reticence in his mind, there lay I know not what flattering ideas. 
Meanwhile, from time to time, as he passed the last groups of bourgeois closing their doors, he caught some scraps of their conversation, which broke the thread of his pleasant hypotheses. Now it was two old men accosting each other. "'Do you know that it is cold, Master Thibault Ferniclet?' Gringoire had been aware of this since the beginning of the winter. "'Yes, indeed, Master Boniface de Somay. Are we going to have a winter such as we had three years ago, in eighty, when wood cost eight sous the measure?' "'Bah! That's nothing, Master Thibault, compared with the winter of 1407, when it froze from St. Martin's Day until Candlemas, and so cold that the pen of the Registrar of the Parliament froze every three words in the Grand Chamber.' which interrupted the registration of justice. Further on there were two female neighbors at their windows, holding candles which the fog caused to sputter. "'Has your husband told you about the mishap, Mademoiselle La Baudrec? "'No. What is it, Mademoiselle Turquin?' "'The horse of Monsieur Gilles Gaudin, the notary of the Châtelet, took fright at the Flemings and their procession, and overturned Master Philippe Evrilot, lay monk of the Celestines.' "'Really? Actually! A bourgeois horse! Tis rather too much! If it had been a cavalry horse, well and good!' And the windows were closed. But Gringoire had lost the thread of his ideas nevertheless. Fortunately, he speedily found it again, and he knotted it together without difficulty, thanks to the gypsy, thanks to Jolly, who still walked in front of him. Two fine, delicate, and charming creatures, whose tiny feet, beautiful forms, and graceful manners he was engaged in admiring, almost confusing them in his contemplation. Believing them to be both young girls, from their intelligence and good friendship, regarding them both as goats, so far as the lightness, agility, and dexterity of their walk were concerned. But the streets were becoming blacker and more deserted every moment. The curfew had sounded long ago, and it was only at rare intervals now that they encountered a passer-by in the street, or a light in the windows. Gringoire had become involved in his pursuit of the gypsy, in that inextricable labyrinth of alleys, squares, and closed courts which surround the ancient sepulchre of the Saint Innocents, and which resembles a ball of thread tangled by a cat. "'Here are streets which possess but little logic,' said Gringoire, lost in the thousands of circuits which returned upon themselves incessantly but where the young girl pursued a road which seemed familiar to her, without hesitation and with a step which became ever more rapid. As for him, he would have been utterly ignorant of his situation had he not espied, in passing, at the turn of a street, the octagonal mass of the pillory of the fish-markets, the open-work summit of which threw its black, fretted outlines clearly upon a window which was still lighted in the Rue Verdelet. The young girl's attention had been attracted to him for the last few moments. She had repeatedly turned her head towards him with uneasiness. She had even once come to a standstill, and taking advantage of a ray of light which escaped from a half-open bakery, to survey him intently from head to foot. Then, having cast this glance, 
Gringoire had seen her make that little pout which he had already noticed, after which she passed on. This little pout had furnished Gringoire with food for thought. There was certainly both disdain and mockery in that graceful grimace. So he dropped his head, began to count the paving-stones, and to follow the young girl at a little greater distance, when, at the turn of a street, which had caused him to lose sight of her, he heard her utter a piercing cry. He hastened his steps. The street was full of shadows. Nevertheless, a twist of toe soaked in oil, which burned in a cage at the feet of the Holy Virgin at the street-corner, permitted Gringoire to make out the gypsy struggling in the arms of two men, who were endeavouring to stifle her cries. The poor little goat, in great alarm, lowered his horns and bleated. "'Help! Gentlemen of the watch!' shouted Gringoire, and advanced bravely. One of the men who held the young girl turned towards him. It was the formidable visage of Quasimodo. Gringoire did not take to flight, but neither did he advance another step. Quasimodo came up to him, tossed him four paces away on the pavement with a backward turn of the hand, and plunged rapidly into the gloom, bearing the young girl folded across one arm like a silken scarf. His companion followed him, and the poor goat ran after them all, bleeding plaintively. "'Murder! Murder!' shrieked the unhappy gypsy. "'Halt, rascals, and yield me that wench!' suddenly shouted in a voice of thunder, a cavalier who appeared suddenly from a neighbouring square. It was a captain of the king's archers, armed from head to foot, with his sword in his hand. He tore the gypsy from the arms of the dazed Quasimodo, threw her across his saddle, and at the moment when the terrible hunchback, recovering from his surprise, rushed upon him to regain his prey, fifteen or sixteen archers, who followed their captain closely, made their appearance, with their two-edged swords in their fists. It was a squad of the king's police, which was making the rounds by order of Monsieur Robert d'Estauville, guard of the provost-ship of Paris. Quasimodo was surrounded, seized, garroted. He roared, he foamed at the mouth, he bit, and had it been broad daylight there is no doubt that his face alone rendered more hideous by wrath, would have put the entire squad to flight. But by night he was deprived of his most formidable weapon, his ugliness. His companion had disappeared during the struggle. The gypsy gracefully raised herself upright upon the officer's saddle, placed both hands upon the young man's shoulders, and gazed fixedly at him for several seconds, as though enchanted with his good looks and with the aid which he had just rendered her. Then, breaking silence first, she said to him, making her sweet voice still sweeter than usual, "'What is your name, Monsieur le gendarme?' "'Captain Phoebus de Chateaupay, at your service, my beauty,' replied the officer, drawing himself up. "'Thanks,' said she. And while Captain Phoebus was turning up his moustache in Burgundian fashion, she slipped from the horse like an arrow falling to earth, and fled. A flash of lightning would have vanished less quickly. "'Nombriel of the Pope,' said the captain, causing Quasimodo's straps to be drawn tighter, 
I should have preferred to keep the winch. "'What would you have, Captain?' said one gendarme. "'The warbler has fled, and the bat remains.'" End of chapter 4book second chapter five of the hunchback of notre dame by victor hugo this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter five result of the dangers gringoire thoroughly stunned by his fall remained on the pavement in front of the holy virgin at the street corner little by little he regained his senses at first for several minutes he was floating in a sort of half somnolent reverie which was not without its charm, in which aerial figures of the gypsy and her goat were coupled with Quasimodo's heavy fist. This state lasted but a short time. A decidedly vivid sensation of cold in the part of his body which was in contact with the pavement suddenly aroused him and caused his spirit to return to the surface. "'Whence comes this chill?' he said abruptly to himself. He then perceived that he was lying half in the middle of the gutter. "'That devil of a hunchbacked cyclops!' he muttered between his teeth, and he tried to rise. But he was too dazed and bruised. He was forced to remain where he was. Moreover, his hand was tolerably free. He stopped his nose and resigned himself. "'The mud of Paris!' he said to himself for decidedly he thought that he was sure that the gutter would prove his refuge for the night. And what can one do in a refuge except dream? The mud of Paris is particularly stinking. It must contain a great deal of volatile and nitric salts. That, moreover, is the opinion of Master Nicolas Flamel and of the alchemists. The word alchemists suddenly suggested to his mind the idea of Archdeacon Claude Frollo. He recalled the violent scene which he had just witnessed in part, that the gypsy was struggling with two men, that Quasimodo had a companion, and the morose and haughty face of the Archdeacon passed confusedly through his memory. "'That would be strange,' he said to himself and on that fact and that basis he began to construct a fantastic edifice of the hypothesis, that hard castle of philosophers. Then suddenly returning once more to reality, "'Come, I'm freezing!' he ejaculated. The place was, in fact, becoming less and less tenable. Each molecule of the gutter bore away a molecule of heat radiating from Gringoire's loins and the equilibrium between the temperature of his body and the temperature of the brook began to be established in rough fashion. Quite a different annoyance suddenly assailed him. A group of children, those little barefooted savages who have always roamed the pavements of Paris under the eternal name of Gamines, and who, when we were also children ourselves, threw stones at all of us in the afternoon when we came out of school because our trousers were not torn, a swarm of these young scamps rushed towards the square where Gringoire lay, with shouts and laughter which seemed to pay but little heed to the sleep of the neighbors. They were dragging after them some sort of hideous sack, and the noise of their wooden shoes alone would have roused the dead. Gringoire, who was not quite dead yet, half raised himself. 
Away, Anakin Dandoshe! Away, Jahan Pensabod! they shouted in deafening tones. Old Eustache Maubon, the merchant at the corner, has just died. We've got his straw pallet. We're going to have a bonfire out of it. It's the turn of the Flemish today. And behold, they flung the pallet directly upon Gringoire, beside whom they had arrived without espying him. At the same time, one of them took a handful of straw and set off to light it with the wick of the good virgin. Steth, growled Gringoire, am I going to be too warm now? It was a critical moment. He was caught between fire and water. He made a superhuman effort, the effort of a counterfeiter of money who is on the point of being boiled and who seeks to escape. He rose to his feet, flung aside the straw pallet upon the street urchins, and fled. "'Holy Virgin!' shrieked the children. "'Tis the merchant's ghost!' And they fled in their turn. The straw mattress remained master of the field. Belforet, Father Lejuge, and Carrozet affirm that it was picked up on the morrow, with great pomp, by the clergy of the quarter and borne to the treasury of the church of saint Apertune, where the sacristan, even as late as 1789, earned a tolerably handsome revenue out of the great miracle of the statue of the Virgin at the corner of the Rue Maconce, which had, by its mere presence, on the memorable night between the 6th and 7th of January, 1482, exorcised the defunct Eustache Maubin, who in order to play a trick on the devil had, at his death, maliciously concealed his soul in the straw pallet. End of chapter 5《Of the Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Second, Chapter Six The Broken Jug. After having run for some time at the top of his speed, without knowing whither, knocking his head against many a street corner, leaping many a gutter, traversing many an alley, many a court, many a square, seeking flight and passage, through all the meanderings of the ancient passages of the all, exploring in his panic terror what the fine Latin of the maps calls tota via, ceminum et viaria, our poet suddenly halted for lack of breath in the first place, and in the second because he had been collared, after a fashion, by a dilemma which had just occurred to his mind. "'It strikes me, Master Pierre Gringoire,' he said to himself, placing his finger to his brow, that you are running like a madman. The little scamps are no less afraid of you than you are of them. It strikes me, I say, that you heard the clatter of their wooden shoes fleeing southward, while you were fleeing northward. Now one of two things. Either they have taken flight, and the pallet, which they must have forgotten in their terror, is precisely that hospitable bed in search of which you have been running ever since morning, and which Madame the Virgin miraculously sends you in order to recompense you for having made a morality in her honour, accompanied by triumphs and mummeries. Or the children have not taken flight, and in that case they have put the brand to the pallet, and that is precisely the good fire which you need to cheer, dry, and warm you. In either case, 
good fire or good bed, that straw pallet is a gift from heaven. The Blessed Virgin Marie, who stands at the corner of the Rue Mauconseil, could only have made Eustache Mauban die for that express purpose. And it is folly on your part to flee thus zigzag, like a Picard before a Frenchman, leaving behind you what you seek before you, and you are a fool." Then he retraced his steps, and feeling his way and searching, with his nose to the wind and his ears on the alert, he tried to find the blessed pallet again, but in vain. There was nothing to be found but intersections of houses, closed courts, and crossings of streets, in the midst of which he hesitated and doubted incessantly, being more perplexed and entangled in this medley of streets than he would have been even in the labyrinth of the Hôtel du Tournel. At length he lost patience, and exclaimed solemnly, "'Cursed be crossroads! Tis the devil who has made them in the shape of his pitchfork!' This exclamation afforded him a little solace, and a sort of reddish reflection which he caught sight of at that moment, at the extremity of a long and narrow lane, completed the elevation of his moral tone. "'God be praised!' said he. "'There it is yonder! There is my pallet burning!' And comparing himself to the pilot who suffers shipwreck by night, "'Salve!' he added piously. "'Salve, Mari Stella!' Did he address this fragment of litany to the Holy Virgin, or to the pallet? we are utterly unable to say. He had taken but a few steps in the long street which sloped downwards, was unpaved, and more and more muddy and steep, when he noticed a very singular thing. It was not deserted. Here and there along its extent crawled certain vague and formless masses, all directing their course towards the light which flickered at the end of the street, like those heavy insects which drag along by night from blade to blade of grass, towards the shepherd's fire. Nothing renders one so adventurous as not being able to feel the place where one's pocket is situated. Gringoire continued to advance, and had soon joined that one of the forms which dragged along most indolently behind the others. On drawing near, he perceived that it was nothing else than a wretched legless cripple in a bowl, who was hopping along on his two hands like a wounded field-spider which has but two legs left. At the moment when he passed close to this species of spider with a human countenance, it raised towards him a lamentable voice. "'La buona mancia, signor! La buona mancia!' "'Deuce take you,' said Gringoire, "'and me with you, if I know what you mean.' And he passed on. He overtook another of these itinerant masses, and examined it. It was an impotent man, both halt and crippled, and halt and crippled to such a degree that the complicated system of crutches and wooden legs which sustained him gave him the air of a mason scaffolding on the march. Gringoire, who liked noble and classical comparisons, compared him in thought to the living tripod of Vulcan. This living tripod saluted him as he passed, but stopping his hat on a level with Gringoire's chin, like a shaving-dish, while he shouted in the latter's ears, "'Signor Caballero, para comprar un potasso de pan!' "'It appears,' said Gringoire, "'that this one can also talk. 
But tis a rude language, and he is more fortunate than I if he understands it." Then, smiting his brow, in a sudden transition of ideas, "'By the way, what the deuce did they mean this morning with their Esmeralda?' He was minded to augment his pace, but for the third time something barred his way. This something, or rather some one, was a blind man, a little blind fellow with a bearded Jewish face, who, rowing away in the space about him with a stick, and towed by a large dog, droned through his nose with a Hungarian accent, Vesitote caritatem. Well now, said Gringoire, here's one at last who speaks a Christian tongue. I must have a very charitable aspect, since they ask alms of me in the present lean condition of my purse. My friend, and he turned towards the blind man, I sold my last shirt last week, that is to say, since you understand only the language of Cicero, vendidi hebdomade nuper transita miam altimam chemisan. That said, he turned his back upon the blind man, and pursued his way. But the blind man began to increase his stride at the same time, and behold, the cripple and the legless man, in his bowl, came up on their side in great haste, and with great clamour of bowl and crutches, upon the pavement. Then all three, jostling each other at poor Gringoire's heels, began to sing their song to him. "'Caritatum!' chanted the blind man. La buonamancia, chanted the cripple in the bowl, and the lame man took up the musical phrase by repeating, Un pedazo de pan. Gringoire stopped up his ears. Oh, Tower of Babel! he exclaimed. He set out to run. The blind man ran. The lame man ran. The cripple in the bowl ran. And then, in proportion as he plunged deeper into the street, Cripples and bowls, blind men and lame men swarmed about him, and men with one arm and with one eye, and the leprous with their sores, some emerging from little streets adjacent, some from the air-holes of cellars, howling, bellowing, yelping, all limping and halting, all flinging themselves towards the light, and humped up in the mire like snails after a shower. Gringoire, still followed by his three persecutors, and not knowing very well what was to become of him, marched along in terror among them, turning out for the lame, stepping over the cripples in bowls, with his feet embedded in that ant-hill of lame men, like the English captain who got caught in the quicksand of a swarm of crabs. The idea occurred to him of making every effort to retrace his steps, but it was too late. This whole legion had closed in behind him and his three beggars held him fast. So he proceeded, impelled both by this irresistible flood, by fear, and by a vertigo which converted all this into a sort of horrible dream. At last he reached the end of the street. It opened upon an immense place, where a thousand scattered lights flickered in the confused mists of night. Gringoire flew thither, hoping to escape, by the swiftness of his legs, from the three infirm spectres who had clutched him. "'Onde vas, hombre? Where are you going, my man?' cried the cripple, flinging away his crutches, and running after him with the best legs that ever traced a geometrical step upon the pavements of Paris. 
In the meantime, the legless man, erect upon his feet, crowned Gringoire with his heavy iron bowl, and the blind man glared in his face with flaming eyes. "'Where am I?' said the terrified poet. "'In the Court of Miracles,' replied a fourth spectre, who had accosted them. "'Upon my soul,' resumed Gringoire, "'I certainly do behold the blind who see, and the lame who walk, but where is the Saviour? They replied by a burst of sinister laughter. The poor poet cast his eyes about him. It was, in truth, that redoubtable Cour de Miracles, whither an honest man had never penetrated at such an hour. The magic circle, where the officers of the Châtelet and the sergeants of the provost-ship who ventured thither disappeared in morsels. A city of thieves, a hideous wart on the face of Paris, a sewer from which escaped every morning and whither returned every night to crouch that stream of vices, of mendicancy and vagabondage which always overflows in the streets of capitals. A monstrous hive to which returned at nightfall, with their booty, all the drones of the social order. A lying hospital, where the bohemian, the disfrocked monk, the ruined scholar, the ne'er-do-wells of all nations, Spaniards, Italians, Germans, of all religions, Jews, Christians, Mohammedans, idolaters, covered with painted sores, beggars by day, were transformed by night into brigands. An immense dressing-room, in a word, where, at that epoch, the actors of that eternal comedy, which theft, prostitution, and murder play upon the pavements of Paris, dressed and undressed. It was a vast place, irregular and badly paved, like all the squares of Paris at that date. Fires, around which swarmed strange groups, blazed here and there. Everyone was going, coming, and shouting. Shrill laughter was to be heard, the wailing of children, the voices of women. The hands and heads of this throng, black against the luminous background, outlined against it a thousand eccentric gestures. At times, upon the ground, where trembled the light of the fires, mingled with large, indefinite shadows, one could behold a dog passing, which resembled a man, a man who resembled a dog. The limits of races and species seemed effaced in this city as in a pandemonium. Men, women, beasts, age, sex, health, maladies, all seemed to be in common among these people. All went together. They mingled, confounded, superposed. Each one there participated in all. The poor and flickering flames of the fire permitted Gringoire to distinguish, amid his trouble, all around the immense place, a hideous frame of ancient houses, whose worm-eaten, shriveled, stunted façades, each pierced with one or two lighted attic windows, seemed to him, in the darkness, like enormous heads of old women, ranged in a circle, monstrous and crabbed, winking as they looked on the witch's Sabbath. It was like a new world, unknown, unheard of, misshapen, creeping, swarming, fantastic. Gringoire, more and more terrified, clutched by the three beggars as by three pairs of tongs, dazed by a throng of other faces which frothed and yelped around him, unhappy Gringoire endeavoured to summon his presence of mind in order to recall whether it was a Saturday. 
but his efforts were in vain. The thread of his memory and of his thought was broken, and, doubting everything, wavering between what he saw and what he felt, he put to himself this unanswerable question. If I exist, does this exist? If this exists, do I exist? At that moment a distinct cry arose in the buzzing throng which surrounded him. Let's take him to the king! Let's take him to the king! Holy Virgin! murmured Gringoire. The king here must be a ram! To the king! To the king! repeated all the voices. They dragged him off. Each vied with the other in laying his claws upon him. But the three beggars did not loose their hold and tore him from the rest, howling, He belongs to us! The poet's already sickly doublet yielded its last sigh in this struggle. While traversing the horrible place, his vertigo vanished. After taking a few steps, the sentiment of reality returned to him. He began to become accustomed to the atmosphere of the place. At the first moment there had arisen from his poet's head, or simply and prosaically from his empty stomach, a mist, a vapor, so to speak, which, spreading between objects and himself, permitted him to catch a glimpse of them only in the incoherent fog of nightmare, in those shadows of dreams which distort every outline, agglomerating objects into unwieldy groups, dilating things into chimeras, and men into phantoms. Little by little this hallucination was succeeded by a less bewildered and exaggerating view. Reality made its way to the light around him, struck his eyes, struck his feet, and demolished, bit by bit, all that frightful poetry with which he had at first believed himself to be surrounded. He was forced to perceive that he was not walking in the sticks, but in mud, that he was elbowed not by demons, but by thieves, that it was not his soul which was in question, but his life, since he lacked that precious conciliator which places itself so effectually between the bandit and the honest man, a purse. In short, on examining the orgy more closely, and with more coolness, he fell from the witch's sabbath to the dram-shop. The Cour de Miracles was, in fact, merely a dram-shop, but a brigand's dram-shop reddened quite as much with blood as with wine. The spectacle which presented itself to his eyes, when his ragged escort finally deposited him at the end of his trip, was not fitted to bear him back to poetry, even to the poetry of hell. It was more than ever the prosaic and brutal reality of the tavern. Were we not in the fifteenth century, we would say that Gringoire had descended from Michelangelo to Calot. Around a great fire, which burned on a large, circular flagstone, the flames of which had heated red-hot the legs of a tripod, which was empty for the moment, some worm-eaten tables were placed here and there, haphazard, no lackey of a geometrical turn having deigned to adjust their parallelism, or to see to it that they did not make too unusual angles. Upon these tables gleamed several dripping pots of wine and beer, and around these pots were grouped many bacchic visages, purple with the fire and the wine. There was a man with a huge belly and a jovial face, noisily kissing a woman of the town, thick-set and brawny. There was a sort of sham soldier, a nequa, as the slang expression runs, 
who was whistling as he undid the bandages from his fictitious wound, and removing the numbness from his sound and vigorous knee, which had been swathed since morning in a thousand ligatures. On the other hand, there was a wretched fellow, preparing with celandine and beef's blood his leg of God for the next day. Two tables further on, a palmer, with his pilgrim's costume complete, was practicing the lament of the Holy Queen, not forgetting the drone and the nasal drawl. Further on, a young scamp was taking a lesson in epilepsy from an old pretender, who was instructing him in the art of foaming at the mouth, by chewing a morsel of soap. Beside him, a man with the dropsy was getting rid of his swelling, and making four or five female thieves, who were disputing at the same table, over a child who had been stolen that evening, hold their noses. All circumstances which, two centuries later, seemed so ridiculous to the court, as Sauval says, that they served as a pastime to the king, and as an introduction to the royal ballet of night, divided into four parts, and danced on the theatre of the Petit Bourbon. Never, adds an eye-witness of 1653, have the sudden metamorphoses of the Court of Miracles been more happily presented. Bensarad prepared us for it by some very gallant verses. Loud laughter everywhere, and obscene songs. Each one held his own course, carping and swearing, without listening to his neighbor. Pots clinked, and quarrels sprang up at the shock of the pots, and the broken pots made rents in the rags. A big dog, seated on his tail, gazed at the fire. Some children were mingled in this orgy. The stolen child wept and cried, another, a big boy, four years of age, seated with legs dangling upon a bench that was too high for him, before a table that reached to his chin, was uttering not a word. A third, gravely spreading out upon the table with his finger the melted tallow which dripped from a candle. Last of all, a little fellow, crouching in the mud, almost lost in a cauldron which he was scraping with a tile, and from which he was evoking a sound that would have made Stradivarius swoon. Near the fire was a hogshead, and on the hogshead a beggar. This was the king on his throne. The three who had Gringois in their clutches led him in front of this hogshead, and the entire bacchanal rout fell silent for a moment, with the exception of the cauldron inhabited by the child. Gringois dared neither breathe nor raise his eyes. "'Hombre, quita tu sombrero!' said one of the three knaves, in whose grasp he was, and before he had comprehended the meaning the other had snatched his hat a wretched headgear, it is true, but still good on a sunny day, or when there was but little rain. Gringoire sighed. Meanwhile the king addressed him, from the summit of his cask. "'Who is this rogue?' Gringoire shuddered. That voice, although accentuated by menace, recalled to him another voice, which, that very morning, had dealt the death-blow to his mystery by drawling nasally in the midst of the audience, "'Charity, please!' He raised his head. It was indeed Clopin Trifot. Clopin Trifot, arrayed in his royal insignia, wore neither one rag more nor one rag less. The sore upon his arm had already disappeared. 
he held in his hand one of those whips made of thongs of white leather, which police sergeants then used to repress the crowd, and which were called boyers. On his head he wore a sort of headgear, bound round and closed at the top. But it was difficult to make out whether it was a child's cap or a king's crown, the two things bore so strong a resemblance to each other. Meanwhile Gringoire, without knowing why, had regained some hope, on recognizing in the King of the Cour de Miracles his accursed mendicant of the Grand Hall. "'Master,' stammered he, "'Monseigneur! Sire! How ought I to address you?' he said at length, having reached the culminating point of his crescendo, and knowing neither how to mount higher nor to descend again. Monseigneur, his majesty, or comrade, call me what you please, but make haste. What have you to say in your own defence? In your own defence, thought Gringoire, that displeases me. He resumed, stuttering, I am he who this morning, by the devil's claws, interrupted Clopin, your name, knave, and nothing more. Listen. You are in the presence of three powerful sovereigns. Myself, Clopin Trefaux, King of Tunay, successor to the Grand Coisset, supreme suzerain of the realm of Argo. Matthias Hunyadi Spicali, Duke of Egypt and of Bohemia, the old yellow fellow whom you see yonder, with a dish-clout round his head. Guillaume Ressot, Emperor of Galilee that fat fellow who is not listening to us but caressing a wench. We are your judges. You have entered the kingdom of Argo without being an Argotier. You have violated the privileges of our city. You must be punished unless you are a capon, a franc, mito, or rifaudé, that is to say, in the slang of honest folks, a thief, a beggar, or a vagabond. Are you anything of that sort? Justify yourself, announce your titles. Alas, said Gringoire, I have not that honor. I am the author. That is sufficient, resumed Trefaux, without permitting him to finish. You are going to be hanged. Tis a very simple matter, gentlemen and honest bourgeois. As you treat our people in your abode, so we treat you in ours. The law which you apply to vagabonds, vagabonds apply to you. Tis your fault if it is harsh. One really must behold the grimace of an honest man above the hempen collar now and then. That renders the thing honorable. Come, friend, divide your rags gaily among these damsels. I am going to have you hanged to amuse the vagabonds, and you are to give them your purse to drink your health. If you have any mummery to go through with, there's a very good God the Father in that mortar yonder in stone, which we stole from the saint pierre aux Boeufs. You have four minutes in which to fling your soul at his head." The harangue was formidable. "'Well said, upon my soul! Clopin Trefaux preaches like the Holy Father the Pope!' exclaimed the Emperor of Galilee, smashing his pot in order to prop up his table. Monseigneurs, emperors, and kings, said Gringoire coolly, for I know not how, firmness had returned to him, and he spoke with resolution. Don't think of such a thing. 
My name is Pierre Gringoire. I am the poet whose morality was presented this morning in the grand hall of the courts." "'Ah, so it was you, master,' said Clopin. "'I was there, c'était Deu. Well, comrade, is that any reason, because you bored us to death this morning, that you should not be hung this evening?' "'I shall find difficulty in getting out of it,' said Gringoire to himself. Nevertheless, he made one more effort. "'I don't see why poets are not classed with vagabonds,' said he. "'Vagabond. Aesopus certainly was. Homerus was a beggar. Mercurius was a thief.' Clopin interrupted him. "'I believe that you are trying to blarney us with your jargon. Zounds! Let yourself be hung, and don't kick up such a row over it.' "'Pardon me, Monseigneur, the King of Tunay,' replied Gringoire, disputing the ground foot by foot. "'It is worth trouble. One moment, listen to me. You are not going to condemn me without having heard me.' His unlucky voice was, in fact, drowned in the uproar which rose around him. The little boy scraped away at his cauldron with more spirit than ever, and, to crown all, an old woman had just placed on the tripod a frying-pan of grease which hissed away on the fire with a noise similar to the cry of a troop of children in pursuit of a masker. In the meantime Clopin Trifot appeared to hold a momentary conference with the Duke of Egypt and the Emperor of Galilee, who was completely drunk. Then he shouted shrilly, "'Silence!' and as the cauldron and the frying-pan did not heed him, and continued their duet, he jumped down from his hogshead and gave a kick to the boiler which rolled ten paces away bearing the child with it, a kick to the frying-pan which upset in the fire with all its grease, and gravely remounted his throne, without troubling himself about the stifled tears of the child or the grumbling of the old woman, whose supper was wasting away in a fine white flame. Trifot made a sign, and the duke, the emperor, and the past masters of pickpockets and the isolated robbers came and ranged themselves around him in a horseshoe of which Gringoire, still roughly held by the body, formed the centre. It was a semicircle of rags, tatters, tinsel, pitchforks, axes, legs staggering with intoxication, huge, bare arms, faces sordid, dull and stupid. In the midst of this round table of beggary, Clopin Trifot, as the doge of this senate, as the king of this peerage, as the pope of this conclave, dominated first by virtue of the height of his hogshead, and next by virtue of an indescribable haughty, fierce, and formidable air, which caused his eyes to flash and corrected in his savage profile the bestial type of the race of vagabonds. One would have pronounced him a boar amid a herd of swine. Listen, said he to Gringoire, fondling his misshapen chin with his horny hand, I don't see why you should not be hung. It is true that it appears to be repugnant to you, and it is very natural, for you bourgeois are not accustomed to it. You form for yourselves a great idea of the thing. After all, we don't wish you any harm. Here is a means of extricating yourself from your predicament for the moment. Will you become one of us? The reader can judge of the effect which this proposition produced upon Gringoire, who beheld life slipping away from him, 
and who was beginning to lose his hold upon it. He clutched it again with energy. "'Certainly I will, and right heartily,' said he. "'Do you consent?' resumed Clopin, to enroll yourself among the people of the knife?" "'Of the knife, precisely,' responded Gringoire. "'You recognize yourself as a member of the free bourgeoisie?' added the King of Tunay. "'Of the free bourgeoisie. Subject of the kingdom of Argo? Of the kingdom of Argo. A vagabond? A vagabond. In your soul?' in my soul. I must call your attention to the fact, continued the king, that you would be hung all the same. The devil, said the poet. Only, continued Clopin imperturbably, you will be hung later on, with more ceremony, at the expense of the good city of Paris, on a handsome stone gibbet and by honest men. That is a consolation." Just so, responded Gringoire. There are other advantages. In your quality of a high-toned sharper, you will not have to pay the taxes on mud, or the poor, or lanterns to which the bourgeois of Paris are subject. So be it, said the poet. I agree. I am a vagabond, a thief, a sharper, a man of the knife, anything you please and I am all that already, Monsieur King of Tunay, for I am a philosopher. Et omnia in philosophia omnis in philosopho continentur. All things are contained in philosophy, all men in the philosopher, as you know." The King of Tunay scowled. "'What do you take me for, my friend? What Hungarian Jew-patter are you jabbering at us? I don't know Hebrew.' One isn't a Jew because one is a bandit. I don't even steal any longer. I'm above all that. I kill. Cutthroat, yes. Cutpurse, no." Gringoire tried to slip in some excuse between these curt words, which wrath rendered more and more jerky. "'I ask your pardon, Monseigneur. It is not Hebrew, tis Latin.' "'I tell you,' resumed Clopin angrily, that I am not a Jew, and that I'll have you hung belly of the synagogue like that little shopkeeper of Judea, who is by your side, and whom I entertain strong hopes of sealing nailed to a counter one of these days, like the counterfeit coin that he is." So saying, he pointed his finger at the little bearded Hungarian Jew, who had accosted Gringoire with his facitote caritatum and who, understanding no other language, beheld with surprise the King of Tunay's ill-humour overflow upon him. At length Monsieur Clopin calmed down. "'So, you will be a vagabond, you knave,' he said to our poet. "'Of course,' replied the poet. "'Willing is not all,' said the surly Clopin. "'Goodwill doesn't put one onion the more into the soup.' That is good for nothing except to go to paradise with. Now, paradise and the thieves' band are two different things. In order to be received among the thieves, you must prove that you are good for something, and for that purpose you must search the mannequin." "'I'll search anything you like,' said Gringoire. Clopin made a sign. Several thieves detached themselves from the circle and returned a moment later. 
they brought two thick posts, terminated at their lower extremities in spreading timber supports, which made them stand readily upon the ground. To the upper extremity of the two posts they fitted a cross-beam, and the whole constituted a very pretty portable gibbet, which Gringoire had the satisfaction of beholding rise before him in a twinkling. Nothing was lacking, not even the rope, which swung gracefully over the cross-beam. "'What are they going to do?' Gringoire asked himself, with some uneasiness. A sound of bells, which he heard at that moment, put an end to his anxiety. It was a stuffed mannequin, which the vagabonds were suspending by the neck from the rope, a sort of scarecrow dressed in red, and so hung with mule-bells and larger bells, that one might have tricked out thirty Castilian mules with them. These thousand tiny bells quivered for some time with the vibration of the rope, then gradually died away, and finally became silent when the mannequin had been brought into a state of immobility by that law of the pendulum which has dethroned the water-clock and the hour-glass. Then Clopin, pointing out to Gringoire a rickety old stool placed beneath the mannequin, "'Climb up there!' "'Death of the devil!' objected Gringoire. "'I shall break my neck. Your stool limps like one of Marshall's distichs. It has one hexameter leg and one pentameter leg.' "'Climb!' repeated Clopin. Gringoire mounted the stool and succeeded, not without some oscillations of head and arms, in regaining his center of gravity. "'Now,' went on the King of Tunay. Twist your right foot round your left leg, and rise on the tip of your left foot." "'Monseigneur,' said Gringoire, "'so you absolutely insist on my breaking some of my limbs?' Clopin tossed his head. "'Hark ye, my friend, you talk too much. Here's the gist of the matter in two words. You are to rise on tiptoe as I tell you. In that way you will be able to reach the pocket of the mannequin. You will rummage it, you will pull out the purse that is there, and if you do all this without our hearing the sound of a bell, all is well. You shall be a vagabond. All we shall then have to do will be to thrash you soundly for the space of a week." "'Ventre deux! I will be careful,' said Gringoire. "'And suppose I do make the bell sound? Then you will be hanged. Do you understand?' I don't understand at all," replied Gringoire. "'Listen once more. You are to search the mannequin, and take away its purse. If a single bell stirs during the operation, you will be hung. Do you understand that?' "'Good,' said Gringoire. "'I understand that. And then?' "'If you succeed in removing the purse without our hearing the bells, you are a vagabond and you will be thrashed for eight consecutive days. You understand now, no doubt?" "'No, monsieur, I no longer understand. Where is the advantage to me, hanged in one case, cudgelled in the other?' "'And a vagabond,' resumed Clopin. "'And a vagabond. Is that nothing? It is for your interest that we should beat you, in order to harden you to blows.' "'Many thanks,' replied the poet. "'Come, make haste,' said the king, stamping upon his cask, which resounded like a huge drum. "'Search the mannequin, and let there be an end to this. I warn you for the last time 
that if I hear a single bell, you will take the place of the mannequin." The band of thieves applauded Clopin's words and arranged themselves in a circle round the gibbet, with a laugh so pitiless that Gringoire perceived that he amused them too much not to have everything to fear from them. No hope was left for him, accordingly, unless it were the slight chance of succeeding in the formidable operation which was imposed upon him. He decided to risk it, but it was not without first having addressed a fervent prayer to the mannequin he was about to plunder, and who would have been easier to move to pity than the vagabonds. These myriad bells, with their little copper tongues, seemed to him like the mouths of so many asps, open and ready to sting and to hiss. Oh, he said in a very low voice, is it possible that my life depends on the slightest vibration of the least of these bells? Oh, he added with clasped hands, bells do not ring, handbells do not clang, mule bells do not quiver. He made one more attempt upon Trefaux. And if there should come a gust of wind? You will be hanged replied the other, without hesitation. Perceiving that no respite, nor reprieve, nor subterfuge was possible, he bravely decided upon his course of action. He wound his right foot round his left leg, raised himself on his left foot, and stretched out his arm. But at the moment when his hand touched the mannequin, his body, which was now supported upon one leg only, wavered on the stool which had but three he made an involuntary effort to support himself by the mannequin, lost his balance, and fell heavily to the ground, deafened by the fatal vibration of the thousand bells of the mannequin, which, yielding to the impulse imparted by his hand, described first a rotary motion, and then swayed majestically between the two posts. "'Malediction!' he cried as he fell, and remained as though dead with his face to the earth. Meanwhile he heard the dreadful peal above his head, the diabolical laughter of the vagabonds, and the voice of Trophie saying, "'Pick me up that knave, and hang him without ceremony.' He rose. They had already detached the mannequin to make room for him. The thieves made him mount the stool. Clopin came to him, passed the rope about his neck, and tapping him on the shoulder, "'Adieu, my friend. You can't escape now even if you digested with the Pope's guts." The word mercy died away upon Gringoire's lips. He cast his eyes about him, but there was no hope. All were laughing. "'Bellevine de la Troie, said the King of Tunay to an enormous vagabond who stepped out from the ranks. "'Climb upon the cross-beam!' Bellevine de la Troie nimbly mounted the traverse-beam and in another minute Gringoire, on raising his eyes, beheld him, with terror, seated upon the beam above his head. "'Now,' resumed Clopin Trifot, "'as soon as I clap my hands, you, André the Red, will fling the stool to the ground with a blow of your knee. You, François Chanteprune, will cling to the feet of the rascal, and you, Bellevine, will fling yourself on his shoulders.' and all three at once, do you hear?" Gringoire shuddered. "'Are you ready?' said Clopin Trifot to the three thieves, who held themselves in readiness to fall upon Gringoire. A moment of horrible suspense ensued for the poor victim, 
during which Clopin tranquilly thrust into the fire with the tip of his foot some bits of vine-shoots which the flame had not caught. "'Are you ready?' he repeated, and opened his hands to clap. One second more, and all would have been over. But he paused, as though struck by a sudden thought. "'One moment,' said he. "'I forgot. It is our custom not to hang a man without inquiring whether there is any woman who wants him. Comrade, this is your last resource. You must wed either a female vagabond or the noose." This law of the vagabonds, singular as it may strike the reader, remains to-day written out at length in ancient English legislation. Gringoire breathed again. This was the second time that he had returned to life within an hour, so he did not dare to trust to it too implicitly. Hola, cried Clopin, mounted once more upon his cask. Hola, women, females, is there among you, from the sorceress to her cat, a wench who wants this rascal? Hola, Colette la Charon, Elizabeth Trovin, Simon Jordan. Marie Pédébault, Tonnet Lelong, Bérard Fanoui, Michel Janay, Claude Rongeret, Matorine Girardot, Hola, Isabeau Latieri, come and see, a man for nothing, who wants him? Gringoire, no doubt, was not very appetizing in his miserable condition. The female vagabonds did not seem to be much affected by the proposition. The unhappy wretch heard them answer, no, no, hang him! There'll be more fun for us all!" Nevertheless, three emerged from the throng and came to smell of him. The first was a big wench with a square face. She examined the philosopher's deplorable doublet attentively. His garment was worn and more full of holes than a stove for roasting chestnuts. The girl made a wry face. "'Old rag!' she muttered and addressing Gringoire, "'Let's see your cloak.' "'I have lost it,' replied Gringoire. "'Your hat? They took it away from me.' "'Your shoes? They have hardly any soles left.' "'Your purse?' "'Alas,' stammered Gringoire, "'I have not even a sou.' "'Let them hang you, then, and say thank you,' retorted the vagabond wench, turning her back on him. The second, old, black, wrinkled, hideous, with an ugliness conspicuous even in the Cour de Miracles, trotted round Gringoire. He almost trembled lest she should want him. But she mumbled between her teeth, "'He's too thin,' and went off. The third was a young girl, quite fresh, and not too ugly. "'Save me,' said the poor fellow to her in a low tone. She gazed at him for a moment with an air of pity, then dropped her eyes, made a plate in her petticoat, and remained in indecision. He followed all these movements with his eyes. It was the last gleam of hope. "'No,' said the young girl at length. "'No, Guillaume Langeois would beat me.' She retreated into the crowd. "'You are unlucky, comrade,' said Clopin. Then, rising to his feet upon his hogshead, "'No one wants him!' he exclaimed, imitating the accent of an auctioneer, to the great delight of all. "'No one wants him! Once, twice, three times!' 
and, turning towards the gibbet with a sign of his hand, "'Gone!' Bellevine de la Toile, André the Red, François Chanteprenet stepped up to Gringoire. At that moment a cry arose among the thieves, "'La Esmeralda! La Esmeralda!' Gringoire shuddered and turned towards the side whence the clamour proceeded. The crowd opened and gave passage to a pure and dazzling form. It was the gypsy. "'La Esmeralda!' said Gringoire stupefied in the midst of his emotions by the abrupt manner in which that magic word knotted together all his reminiscences of the day. This rare creature seemed, even in the Cour de Miracles, to exercise her sway of charm and beauty. The vagabonds, male and female, ranged themselves gently along her path, and their brutal faces beamed beneath her glance. She approached the victim with her light step. Her pretty jolly followed her. Gringoire was more dead than alive. She examined him for a moment in silence. "'You are going to hang this man?' she said gravely to Clopin. "'Yes, sister,' replied the King of Tunay. "'Unless you will take him for your husband.' She made her pretty little pout with her under lip. "'I'll take him,' said she. Gringoire firmly believed that he had been in a dream ever since morning, and that this was the continuation of it. The change was, in fact, violent, though a gratifying one. They undid the noose and made the poet step down from the stool. His emotion was so lively that he was obliged to sit down. The Duke of Egypt brought an earthenware crock without uttering a word. The gypsy offered it to Gringoire. Fling it on the ground, said she. The crock broke into four pieces. Brother, then said the Duke of Egypt, laying his hands upon their foreheads, she is your wife. Sister, he is your husband for four years. Go. End of chapter six. Book Two, Chapter Seven of The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Chapter Seven A Bridal Night. A few moments later, our poet found himself in a tiny arched chamber. Very cosy, very warm, seated at a table which appeared to ask nothing better than to make some loans from a larder hanging nearby, having a good bed in prospect and a loan with a pretty girl. The adventure smacked of enchantment. He began seriously to take himself for a personage in a fairy tale. He cast his eyes about him from time to time to time, as though to see if the chariot of fire, harnessed to two winged chimeras, which alone could have so rapidly transported him from Tartarus to Paradise, were still there. At times, also, he fixed his eyes obstinately upon the holes in his doublet, in order to cling to reality, and not lose the ground from under his feet completely. His reason, tossed about in imaginary space, now hung only by this thread. The young girl did not appear to pay any attention to him. She went and came, displaced a stool, talked to her goat, and indulged in a pout now and then. 
At last she came and seated herself near the table, and Gringoire was able to scrutinize her at his ease. "'You have been a child, reader, and you would, perhaps, be very happy to be one still. It is quite certain that you have not, more than once, and for my part I have passed whole days, the best employed of my life at it, followed from thicket to thicket, by the side of running water, on a sunny day, a beautiful green or blue dragonfly breaking its flight in abrupt angles, and kissing the tips of all the branches. You recollect with what amorous curiosity your thought and your gaze were riveted upon this little whirlwind, hissing and humming with wings of purple and azure, in the midst of which floated an imperceptible body, veiled by the very rapidity of its movement. The aerial being which was dimly outlined amid this quivering of wings appeared to you chimerical, imaginary, impossible to touch, impossible to see. But then, at length, the dragonfly alighted on the tip of a reed, and, holding your breath the while, you were able to examine the long gauze wings, the long enamel robe, the two globes of crystal. What astonishment you felt! and what fear, lest you should again behold the form disappear into a shade, and the creature into a chimera. Recall these impressions, and you will readily appreciate what Gringoire felt on contemplating, beneath her visible and palpable form, that Esmeralda of whom, up to that time, he had only caught a glimpse amidst a whirlwind of dance, song, and tumult. Sinking deeper and deeper into his reverie, so this, he said to himself, following her vaguely with his eyes, is La Asmeralda, a celestial creature, a street-dancer, so much and so little. Twas she who dealt the death-blow to my mystery this morning. Tis she who saves my life this evening. My evil genius, my good angel, a pretty woman on my word and who must needs love me madly to have taken me in that fashion. "'By the way,' said he, rising suddenly, with that sentiment of the true which formed the foundation of his character and his philosophy, "'I don't know very well how it happens, but I am her husband.' With this idea in his head and in his eyes he stepped up to the young girl in a manner so military and so gallant that she drew back. "'What do you want of me?' said she. "'Can you ask me, adorable Esmeralda?' replied Gringoire, with so passionate an accent that he was himself astonished at it on hearing himself speak. The gypsy opened her great eyes. "'I don't know what you mean.' "'What?' resumed Gringoire, growing warmer and warmer, and supposing that, after all, he had to deal merely with a virtue of the Cour de Miracles. Am I not thine, sweet friend? Art thou not mine?" And, quite ingenuously, he clasped her waist. The gypsy's corsage slipped through his hands like the skin of an eel. She bounded from one end of the tiny room to the other, stooped down, and raised herself again, with a little poniard in her hand, before Gringoire had even had time to see whence the poniard came proud and angry, with swelling lips and inflated nostrils, her cheeks as red as an appy apple, and her eyes darting lightnings, 
At the same time the white goat placed itself in front of her, and presented to Gringoire a hostile front, bristling with two pretty horns, gilded and very sharp. All this took place in the twinkling of an eye. The dragonfly had turned into a wasp, and asked nothing better than to sting. Our philosopher was speechless, and turned his astonished eyes from the goat to the young girl. "'Holy virgin!' he said at last, when surprise permitted him to speak. "'Here are two hearty dames!' The gypsy broke the silence on her side. "'You must be a very bold knave!' "'Pardon, mademoiselle,' said Gringoire, with a smile, "'but why did you take me for your husband?' "'Should I have allowed you to be hanged?' "'So!' said the poet, somewhat disappointed in his amorous hopes. You had no other idea in marrying me than to save me from the gibbet? And what other idea did you suppose that I had?" Gringoire bit his lips. "'Come,' said he, "'I am not yet so triumphant in Cupido as I thought. But then, what was the good of breaking that poor jug?' Meanwhile, Esmeralda's dagger and the goat's horns were still upon the defensive. "'Mademoiselle Esmeralda,' said the poet, "'let us come to terms. I am not a clerk of the court, and I shall not go to law with you for thus carrying a dagger in Paris, in the teeth of the ordinances and the prohibitions of Monsieur the Provost. Nevertheless, you are not ignorant of the fact that Noël Lascrevain was condemned a week ago to pay ten Parisian sous for having carried a cutlass. But this is no affair of mine, and I will come to the point. I swear to you, upon my share of paradise, not to approach you without your leave and permission, but do give me some supper." The truth is, Gringoire was, like Monsieur Despreaux, not very voluptuous. He did not belong to that chevalier and musketeer species who take young girls by assault. In the matter of love, as in all other affairs, he willingly assented to temporizing and adjusting terms. And a good supper and an amiable tete-a-tete -tete appeared to him, especially when he was hungry, an excellent interlude between the prologue and the catastrophe of a love-adventure. The gypsy did not reply. She made her disdainful little grimace, drew up her head like a bird, then burst out laughing, and the tiny poniard disappeared as it had come, without Gringoire being able to see where the wasp concealed its sting. A moment later there stood upon the table a loaf of rye bread, a slice of bacon, some wrinkled apples, and a jug of beer. Gringoire began to eat eagerly. One would have said, to hear the furious clashing of his iron fork and his earthenware plate, that all his love had turned to appetite. The young girl seated opposite him, watched him in silence, visibly preoccupied with another thought, at which she smiled from time to time, while her soft hand caressed the intelligent head of the goat, gently pressed between her knees. A candle of yellow wax illuminated this scene of voracity and reverie. Meanwhile, the first cravings of his stomach having been stilled, Gringoire felt some false shame at perceiving that nothing remained but one apple. "'You do not eat, Mademoiselle Esmeralda?' She replied by a negative sign of the head, and her pensive glance fixed itself upon the vault of the ceiling. "'What the deuce is she thinking of?' 
thought Gringoire, staring at what she was gazing at. "'Tis impossible that it can be that stone dwarf carved in the keystone of that arch, which thus absorbs her attention. What the deuce! I can bear the comparison!' He raised his voice. "'Mademoiselle!' She seemed not to hear him. He repeated, still more loudly, "'Mademoiselle Esmeralda!' Trouble wasted. The young girl's mind was elsewhere, and Gringoire's voice had not the power to recall it. Fortunately, the goat interfered. She began to pull her mistress gently by the sleeve. "'What dost thou want, Jolly?' said the gypsy hastily, as though suddenly awakened. "'She is hungry,' said Gringoire, charmed to enter into conversation. Esmeralda began to crumble some bread, which Jolly ate gracefully from the hollow of her hand. Moreover, Gringoire did not give her time to resume her reverie. He hazarded a delicate question. "'So you don't want me for your husband?' The young girl looked at him intently, and said, "'No.' "'For your lover?' went on Gringoire. She pouted, and replied, "'No.' "'For your friend?' pursued Gringoire. She gazed fixedly at him again, and said, after a momentary reflection, Perhaps. This, perhaps, so dear to philosophers, emboldened Gringoire. "'Do you know what friendship is?' he asked. "'Yes,' replied the gypsy. "'It is to be brother and sister, two souls which touch without mingling, two fingers on one hand.' "'And love?' pursued Gringoire. "'Oh, love,' said she, and her voice trembled, and her eye beamed. That is to be two and to be but one, a man and a woman mingled into one angel. It is heaven." The street-dancer had a beauty as she spoke thus, that struck Gringoire singularly, and seemed to him in perfect keeping with the almost oriental exaltation of her words. Her pure red lips half-smiled. Her serene and candid brow became troubled at intervals under her thoughts like a mirror under the breath, and from beneath her long, drooping black eyelashes there escaped a sort of ineffable light, which gave to her profile that ideal serenity which Raphael found at the mystic point of intersection of virginity, maternity, and divinity. Nevertheless, Gringoire continued, "'What must one be, then, in order to please you?' a man. And I, said he, what then am I? A man has a helmet on his head, a sword in his hand, and golden spurs on his heels. Good, said Gringoire, without a horse, no man. Do you love any one? As a lover? Yes. She remained thoughtful for a moment, then said with a peculiar expression, that I shall know soon." "'Why not this evening?' resumed the poet tenderly. "'Why not me?' She cast a grave glance upon him, and said, "'I can never love a man who cannot protect me.'" Gringoire colored, and took the hint. It was evident that the young girl was alluding to the slight assistance which he had rendered her in the critical situation in which she had found herself two hours previously. This memory, effaced by his own adventures of the evening, now recurred to him. 
He smote his brow. By the way, mademoiselle, I ought to have begun there. Pardon my foolish absence of mind. How did you contrive to escape from the claws of Quasimodo? This question made the gypsy shudder. Oh, the horrible hunchback, said she, hiding her face in her hands, and she shuddered as though with a violent cold. Horrible in truth, said Gringoire, who clung to his idea. But how did you manage to escape him? La Esmeralda smiled, sighed, and remained silent. Do you know why he followed you? began Gringoire again, seeking to return to his question by a circuitous route. I don't know, said the young girl, and she added hastily, But you were following me also. Why were you following me? In good faith, responded Gringoire, I don't know either. Silence ensued. Gringoire slashed the table with his knife. The young girl smiled and seemed to be gazing through the wall at something. All at once she began to sing in a barely articulate voice, Cuando las pintadas sabes, mudas están y la tierra. She broke off abruptly and began to caress Jolly. That's a pretty animal of yours, said Gringoire. She is my sister, she answered. Why are you called La Esmeralda? asked the poet. I do not know. But why? She drew from her bosom a sort of little oblong bag, suspended from her neck by a string of adreserac beads. This bag exhaled a strong odor of camphor. It was covered with green silk and bore in its center a large piece of green glass, an imitation of an emerald. Perhaps it is because of this, said she. Gringoire was on the point of taking the bag in his hand. She drew back. Don't touch it. It is an amulet. You would injure the charm, or the charm would injure you. The poet's curiosity was more and more aroused. Who gave it to you? She laid one finger on her mouth and concealed the amulet in her bosom. He tried a few more questions, but she hardly replied. What is the meaning of the words La Esmeralda? I don't know, said she. To what language do they belong? They are Egyptian, I think. I suspected as much, said Gringoire. You are not a native of France? I don't know. Are your parents alive? She began to sing to an ancient air. Mon père est oiseau, ma mère est oisée. Je passe l'eau sans nacelle, je passe l'eau sans bateau. Ma mère est oisée, mon père est oiseau. Good, said Gringoire. At what age did you come to France? When I was very young. And when to Paris? Last year. At the moment when we were entering the papal gate, I saw a reed warbler flit through the air. That was at the end of August. I said it will be a hard winter. And so it was, said Gringoire, delighted at this beginning of a conversation. I passed it in blowing my fingers. So you have the gift of prophecy? She retired into her laconics again. Is that man whom you call the Duke of Egypt the chief of your tribe? Yes. 
But it was he who married us," remarked the poet timidly. She made her customary pretty grimace. I don't even know your name. My name? If you want it, here it is. Pierre Gringoire. I know a prettier one," said she. Naughty girl," retorted the poet. Never mind, you shall not provoke me. Wait, perhaps you will love me more when you know me better, and then you have told me your story with so much confidence that I owe you a little of mine. You must know, then, that my name is Pierre Gringoire, and that I am the son of the farmer of the notary's office of Gonesse. My father was hung by the Burgundians, and my mother disemboweled by the Picards at the siege of Paris twenty years ago. At six years of age, therefore, I was an orphan, without a soul to my foot except the pavements of Paris. I do not know how I passed the interval from six to sixteen. A fruit-dealer gave me a plum here, a baker flung me a crust there. In the evening I got myself taken up by the watch, who threw me into prison, and there I found a bundle of straw. All this did not prevent my growing up and growing thin, as you see. In the winter I warmed myself in the sun, under the porch of the Hôtel de Sens, and thought it very ridiculous that the fire on St. John's Day was reserved for the dog-days. At sixteen I wished to choose a calling. I tried all in succession. I became a soldier, but I was not brave enough. I became a monk, but I was not sufficiently devout. And then I'm a bad hand at drinking. In despair I became an apprentice of the woodcutters, but I was not strong enough. I had more of an inclination to become a schoolmaster. Tis true that I did not know how to read, but that's no reason. I perceived at the end of a certain time that I lacked something in every direction, and seeing that I was good for nothing, of my own free will, I became a poet and a rhymester. That is a trade which one can always adopt when one is a vagabond, and it's better than stealing, as some young brigands of my acquaintance advised me to do. One day I met by luck Dom Claude Frollo, the reverend archdeacon of Notre Dame. He took an interest in me, and it is to him that I to-day owe it that I am a veritable man of letters, who knows Latin from the De Officis of Cicero to the mortuology of the Celestine Fathers, and a barbarian neither in scholastics nor in politics nor in rhythmics, that sophism of sophisms. I am the author of the mystery which was presented to-day with great triumph and a great concourse of populace in the grand hall of the Palace de Justice. I have also made a book which will contain six hundred pages, on the wonderful comet of 1465, which sent one man mad. I have enjoyed still other successes. Being somewhat of an artillery carpenter, I lent a hand to Jean Manguet's great bombard, which burst, as you know, on the day when it was tested on the Pont de Charenton, and killed four-and-twenty curious spectators. You see that I am not a bad match in marriage. I know a great many sorts of very engaging tricks, which I will teach your goat. For example, to mimic the Bishop of Paris, that cursed Pharisee whose mill-wheels splash passers-by the whole length of the Pont aux Monniers. 
and then my mystery will bring me in a great deal of coined money, if they will only pay me, and finally I am at your orders, I and my wits, and my science, and my letters, ready to live with you, damsel, as it shall please you, chastely or joyously, husband and wife if you see fit, brother and sister if you think that better." Gringoire ceased, awaiting the effect of his harangue on the young girl. Her eyes were fixed on the ground. "'Phoebus,' she said in a low voice. Then, turning towards the poet, "'Phoebus, what does that mean?' Gringoire, without exactly understanding what the connection could be between his address and this question, was not sorry to display his erudition. Assuming an air of importance, he replied, "'It is a Latin word which means son.' "'Son,' she repeated. "'It is the name of a handsome archer who was a god,' added Gringoire. "'A god,' repeated the gypsy, and there was something pensive and passionate in her tone. At that moment one of her bracelets became unfastened and fell. Gringoire stooped quickly to pick it up. When he straightened up, the young girl and the goat had disappeared. He heard the sound of a bolt. It was a little door, communicating no doubt with a neighboring cell, which was being fastened on the outside. "'Has she left me a bed, at least?' said our philosopher. He made a tour of his cell. There was no piece of furniture adapted to sleeping purposes, except a tolerably long wooden coffer, and its cover was carved to boot which afforded Gringoire, when he stretched himself out upon it, a sensation somewhat similar to that which Macromagos would feel if he were to lie down on the Alps. "'Come,' said he, adjusting himself as well as possible, "'I must resign myself. But here's a strange nuptial night. Tis a pity. There was something innocent and antediluvian about that broken crock which quite pleased me.' End of chapter 7「Book Third, Chapter One of the Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Third, Chapter One Notre Dame. The Church of Notre-Dame de Paris is still no doubt a majestic and sublime edifice, but, beautiful as it has been preserved in growing old, it is difficult not to sigh, not to wax indignant, before the numberless degradations and mutilations which time and men have both caused the venerable monument to suffer, without respect for Charlemagne, who laid its first stone, or for Philip Augustus, who laid the last. On the face of this aged queen of our cathedrals, by the side of a wrinkle, one always finds a scar. Tempos edex, homo edecior, which I should be glad to translate thus, time is blind, man is stupid. If we had leisure to examine with the reader, one by one, the diverse traces of destruction imprinted upon the old church, time's share would be the least, the share of men the most especially the men of art, since there have been individuals who assumed the title of architects during the last two centuries. 
and in the first place, to cite only a few leading examples, there certainly are few finer architectural pages than this façade, where, successively and at once, the three portals hollowed out in an arch, the broidered and dentated cordon of the eight-and-twenty royal niches, the immense central rose window, flanked by its two lateral windows, like a priest by his deacon and subdeacon, the frail and lofty gallery of trefoil arcades, which supports a heavy platform above its fine, slender columns, and lastly, the two black and massive towers with their slate penthouses, harmonious parts of a magnificent whole, superposed in five gigantic stories. Develop themselves before the eye, in a mass and without confusion, with their innumerable details of statuary, carving, and sculpture, joined powerfully to the tranquil grandeur of the whole. A vast symphony in stone, so to speak, the colossal work of one man and one people, altogether one and complex, like the Iliads and the Romanceros, whose sister it is, prodigious product of the grouping together of all the forces of an epoch, where, upon each stone, one sees the fancy of the workman, disciplined by the genius of the artist, start forth in a hundred fashions. A sort of human creation, in a word, powerful and fecund as the divine creation of which it seems to have stolen the double character, variety, eternity. And what we here say of the façade must be said of the entire church. And what we say of the Cathedral Church of Paris must be said of all the churches of Christendom in the Middle Ages. All things are in place in that art, self-created, logical, and well-proportioned. To measure the great toe of the foot is to measure the giant. Let us return to the façade of Notre-Dame, as it still appears to us, when we go piously to admire the grave and puissant cathedral, which inspires terror, so its chronicles assert. Coe mole sua terrarum incutit spectantibus. Three important things are today lacking in that façade. In the first place, the staircase of eleven steps, which formerly raised it above the soil. Next, the lower series of statues, which occupy the niches of the three portals. And lastly, the upper series, of the twenty-eight most ancient kings of France, which garnish the gallery of the first story, beginning with Childebert and ending with Philip Augustus, holding in his hand the imperial apple. Time has caused the staircase to disappear, by raising the soil of the city with a slow and irresistible progress. But, while thus causing the eleven steps, which added to the majestic height of the edifice to be devoured, one by one, by the rising tide of the pavements of Paris, time has bestowed upon the church perhaps more than it has taken away. For it is time which has spread over the façade that sombre hue of the centuries which makes the old age of monuments the period of their beauty. But who has thrown down the two rows of statues? Who has left the niches empty? Who has cut, in the very middle of the central portal, that new and bastard arch? Who has dared to frame therein that commonplace and heavy door of carved wood, a la Louis the Fifteenth? beside the arabesques of Biscornet. The men, the architects, 
the artists of our day. And if we enter the interior of the edifice, who has overthrown that Colossus of St. Christopher, proverbial for magnitude among statues, as the grand hall of the Palais de Justice was among halls, as the spire of Strasbourg among spires? And those myriads of statues, which peopled all the spaces between the columns of the nave and the choir, kneeling, standing, equestrian, men, women, children, kings, bishops, gendarmes in stone, in marble, in gold, in silver, in copper, in wax even, who has brutally swept them away? It is not time. And who substituted for the ancient Gothic altar, splendidly encumbered with shrines and reliquaries, that heavy marble sarcophagus, with angels' heads and clouds, which seems a specimen pillaged from the Val de Grasse or the Invalide? Who stupidly sealed the heavy anachronism of stone in the Carlovingian pavement of Hercundus? Was it not Louis the Fourteenth fulfilling the request of Louis the Thirteenth? And who put the cold white panes in the place of those windows high in color, which caused the astonished eyes of our fathers to hesitate between the rows of the grand portal and the arches of the apse? And what would a sub-chanter of the sixteenth century say, on beholding the beautiful yellow wash with which our archiepiscopal vandals have dismeared their cathedral? He would remember that it was the color with which the hangman smeared accursed edifices. He would recall the Hôtel de Petit Bourbon, all smeared thus on account of the constable's treason. "'Yellow, after all, of so good a quality,' said Sauval, "'and so well recommended, that more than a century has not yet caused it to lose its color." He would think that the sacred place had become infamous, and would flee. And if we ascend the cathedral, without mentioning a thousand barbarisms of every sort, what has become of that charming little bell-tower which rested upon the point of intersection of the cross-roofs, and which, no less frail and no less bold than its neighbour, also destroyed, the spire of the Sainte-Chapelle, buried itself in the sky, farther forward than the towers, slender, pointed, sonorous, carved in open work. An architect of good taste amputated it, 1787, and considered it sufficient to mask the wound with that large leaden plaster which resembles a pot-cover. Tis thus that the marvellous art of the Middle Ages has been treated in nearly every country, especially in France. One can distinguish on its ruins three sorts of lesions, all three of which cut into it at different depths. First, time which has insensibly notched its surface here and there, and gnawed it everywhere. Next, political and religious revolution, which, blind and wrathful by nature, have flung themselves tumultuously upon it, torn its rich garment of carving and sculpture, burst its rose windows, broken its necklace of arabesques and tiny figures, torn out its statues, sometimes because of their mitres, sometimes because of their crowns. Lastly, fashions, even more grotesque and foolish, which, since the anarchical and splendid deviations of the Renaissance, have followed each other in the necessary decadence of architecture. Fashions have wrought more harm than revolutions. They have cut to the quick. They have attacked the very bone and framework of art. 
They have cut, slashed, disorganized, killed the edifice, in form as in the symbol, in its consistency as well as in its beauty. And then they have made it over, a presumption of which neither time nor revolutions at least have been guilty. They have audaciously adjusted, in the name of good taste, upon the wounds of Gothic architecture, their miserable gigaws of a day, their ribbons of marble, their pompons of metal, a veritable leprosy of egg-shaped ornaments, volutes, whirls, draperies, garlands, fringes, stone flames, bronze clouds, pudgy cupids, chubby-cheeked cherubim, which begin to devour the face of art in the oratory of Catherine de' Medici, and cause it to expire, two centuries later, tortured and grimacing in the boudoir of the Dubarry. Thus, to sum up the points which we have just indicated, three sorts of ravages today disfigure Gothic architecture. Wrinkles and warts on the epidermis, this is the work of time. Deeds of violence, brutalities, contusions, fractures, this is the work of the revolutionaries from Luther to Maribel. Mutilations, amputations, dislocation of the joints, restorations, this is the Greek, Roman, and barbarian work of professors, according to Vitruvius and Vignol. This magnificent art produced by the Vandals has been slain by the academies. The centuries, the revolutions, which at least devastate with impartiality and grandeur, have been joined by a cloud of school architects, licensed, sworn, and bound by oath defacing with the discernment and choice of bad taste, substituting the chicories of Louis XV for the Gothic lace for the greater glory of the Parthenon. It is the kick of the ass at the dying lion. It is the old oak crowning itself, and which, to heap the measure full, is stung, bitten, and gnawed by caterpillars. How far it is from the epoch when Robert Senelis comparing Notre-Dame de Paris to the famous temple of Diana at Ephesus, so much lauded by the ancient pagans, which Aristotle has immortalized from the Gallic temple, more excellent in length, breadth, height, and structure. Notre-Dame is not, moreover, what can be called a complete, definite, classified monument. It is no longer a Romanesque church, nor is it a Gothic church. This edifice is not a type. Notre-Dame de Paris has not, like the Abbey of Tournu, the grave and massive frame, the large and round vault, the glacial bareness, the majestic simplicity of the edifices which have the rounded arch for their progenitor. It is not, like the Cathedral of Bourges, the magnificent, light, multiform, tufted, bristling, efflorescent product of the pointed arch impossible to class it in that ancient family of sombre, mysterious churches, low and crushed, as it were, by the round arch, almost Egyptian, with the exception of the ceiling. All hieroglyphics, all sacerdotal, all symbolical, more loaded in their ornaments, with lozenges and zigzags than with flowers, with flowers than with animals, with animals than with men. The work of the architect less than of the bishop first transformation of arts, all impressed with theocratic and military discipline, 
taking root in the lower empire, and stopping with the time of William the Conqueror. Impossible to place our cathedral in that other family of lofty aerial churches, rich in painted windows and sculpture. Pointed in form, bold in attitude. Communal and bourgeois as political symbols. Free, capricious, lawless as a work of art. Second transformation of architecture, no longer hieroglyphic, immovable, and sacerdotal, but artistic, progressive, and popular, which begins at the return of the Crusades and ends with Louis the Ninth. Notre Dame de Paris is not of pure Romanesque, like the first, nor of pure Arabian race, like the second. It is an edifice of the transition period. The Saxon architect completed the erection of the first pillars of the nave when the pointed arch, which dates from the crusade, arrived and placed itself as a conqueror upon the large Romanesque capitals which should support only round arches. The pointed arch, mistress since that time, constructed the rest of the church. Nevertheless, timid and inexperienced at the start, it sweeps out, grows larger, restrains itself, and dares no longer dart upwards in spires and lancet windows, as it did later on in so many marvellous cathedrals. One would say that it were conscious of the vicinity of the heavy Romanesque pillars. However, these edifices of the transition from the Romanesque to the Gothic are no less precious for study than the pure types. They express a shade of the art which would be lost without them. It is the graft of the pointed upon the round arch. Notre-Dame de Paris is in particular a curious specimen of this variety. Each face, each stone of the venerable monument, is a page not only of the history of the country, but of the history of science and art as well. Thus, in order to indicate here only the principal details, while the little red door almost attains to the limits of the Gothic delicacy of the fifteenth century, the pillars of the nave, by their size and weight, go back to the Carlovingian abbey of the Saint-Germain-des-Prés. One would suppose that six centuries separated these pillars from that door. There is no one, not even the hermetics, who does not find in the symbols of the Grand Portal a satisfactory compendium of their science of which the church of Saint-Jacques-de-la-Boucherie was so complete a hieroglyph. Thus the Roman abbey, the philosopher's church, the Gothic art, Saxon art, the heavy round pillar which recalls Gregory the Seventh, the hermetic symbolism with which Nicholas Flamel played the prelude to Luther, papal unity, schism, Saint-Germain-de-Prés, Saint-Jacques-de-la-Boucherie, all are mingled, combined, amalgamated in Notre-Dame. This central mother-church is, among the ancient churches of Paris, a sort of chimera. It has the head of one, the limbs of another, the haunches of another, something of all. We repeat it. These hybrid constructions are not the least interesting for the artist, for the antiquarian, for the historian. They make one feel to what a degree architecture is a primitive thing, by demonstrating what is also demonstrated by the Cyclopean vestiges, the pyramids of Egypt, the gigantic Hindu pagodas, that the greatest products of architecture are less the works of individuals than of society, rather the offspring of a nation's effort than the inspired flash of a man of genius, 
the deposit left by a whole people, the heaps accumulated by centuries, the residue of successive evaporations of human society, in a word, species of formations. Each wave of time contributes its alluvium, each race deposits its layer on the monument, each individual brings his stone. Thus do the beavers, thus do the bees, thus do men. The great symbol of architecture, Babel, is a hive. Great edifices, like great mountains, are the work of centuries. Art often undergoes a transformation while they are pending, pendent opera interrupta. They proceed quietly in accordance with the transformed art. The new art takes the monument where it finds it, encrusts itself there, assimilates it to itself, develops it according to its fancy, and finishes it if it can. The thing is accomplished without trouble, without effort, without reaction, following a natural and tranquil law. It is a graft which shoots up, a sap which circulates, a vegetation which starts forth anew. Certainly there is matter here for many large volumes, and often the universal history of humanity in the successive engrafting of many arts at many levels upon the same monument. The man, the artist, the individual, is effaced in these great masses, which lack the name of their author. Human intelligence is there summed up and totalized. Time is the architect, the nation is the builder. Not to consider here anything except the Christian architecture of Europe, that younger sister of the great masonries of the Orient, it appears to the eyes as an immense formation divided into three well-defined zones, which are superposed, the one upon the other. The Romanesque zone, the Gothic zone, the zone of the Renaissance, which we would gladly call the Greco-Roman zone. The Roman layer, which is the most ancient and deepest, is occupied by the round arch which reappears, supported by the Greek column, in the modern and upper layer of the Renaissance. The pointed arch is found between the two. The edifices which belong exclusively to any of these three layers are perfectly distinct, uniform, and complete. There is the Abbey of Jumiget, there is the Cathedral of Rheims, there is the Saint-Croix of Orleans. But the three zones mingle and amalgamate along the edges, like the colors in the solar spectrum. Hence complex monuments, edifices of gradation and transition. One is Roman at the base, Gothic in the middle, Greco-Roman at the top. It is because it was six hundred years in building. This variety is rare. The donjon keep of Detampes is a specimen of it. But monuments of two formations are more frequent. There is Notre-Dame de Paris, a pointed arch edifice, which is embedded by its pillars in that Roman zone, in which are plunged the portal of Saint-Denis, and the nave of Saint-Germain-des-Prés. There is the charming, half-Gothic chapter-house of Beauchervie, where the Roman layer extends halfway up. There is the Cathedral of Rouen, which would be entirely Gothic if it did not bathe the tip of its central spire in the zone of the Renaissance. However, all these shades, all these differences, do not affect the surfaces of edifices only. It is art which has changed its skin. The very constitution of the Christian Church is not attacked by it. There is always the same internal woodwork, the same logical arrangement of parts. 
Whatever may be the carved and embroidered envelope of a cathedral, one always finds beneath it, in the state of a germ, and of a rudiment at the least, the Roman basilica. It is eternally developed upon the soil according to the same law. There are, invariably, two naves, which intersect in a cross, and whose upper portion, rounded into an apse, forms the choir. There are always the side-aisles, for interior processions, for chapels, a sort of lateral walks or promenades where the principal nave discharges itself through the space between the pillars. That settled, the number of chapels, doors, bell-towers, and pinnacles are modified to infinity, according to the fancy of the century, the people, and art. The service of religion once assured and provided for, architecture does what she pleases. Statues, stained glass, rose-windows, arabesques, denticulations, capitals, bas-reliefs, she combines all of these imaginings according to the arrangement which best suits her. Hence the prodigious exterior variety of these edifices, at whose foundation dwells so much order and unity. The trunk of a tree is immovable, the foliage is capricious. End of chapter 1 Book Three, Chapter Two of *The Hunchback of Notre Dame* by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Three, Chapter Two: A Bird's Eye View of Paris. We have just attempted to restore, for the reader's benefit, that admirable church of Notre Dame de Paris. We have briefly pointed out the greater part of the beauties which it possessed in the fifteenth century, and which it lacks today but we have omitted the principal thing, the view of Paris which was then to be obtained from the summits of its towers. That was, in fact, when, after having long groped one's way up the dark spiral which perpendicularly pierces the thick wall of the belfries, one emerged, at last abruptly, upon one of the lofty platforms inundated with light and air. That was, in fact, a fine picture which spread out on all sides at once before the eye. A spectacle, sui generis, of which those of our readers who have had the good fortune to see a Gothic city entire, complete, homogeneous, a few of which still remain, Nuremberg in Bavaria and Vittoria in Spain, can readily form an idea, or even smaller specimens, provided that they are well preserved. Vitre in Brittany, Nordhausen in Prussia. The Paris of three hundred and fifty years ago, the Paris of the fifteenth century, was already a gigantic city. We Parisians generally make a mistake as to the ground which we think that we have gained, since Paris has not increased much over one-third since the time of Louis the Eleventh. It has certainly lost more in beauty than it has gained in size. Paris had its birth, as the reader knows, in that old island of the city which has the form of a cradle. The strand of that island was its first boundary wall, the Seine its first moat. Paris remained for many centuries in its island state, with two bridges, one on the north, the other on the south. And two bridgeheads, which were at the same time its gates and its fortresses. The Grand Châtelet on the right bank, 
the Petit Châtelet on the left. Then, from the date of the kings of the first race, Paris, being too cribbed and confined in its island, and unable to return thither, crossed the water. Then, beyond the Grand, beyond the Petit Châtelet, a first circle of walls and towers began to infringe upon the country on the two sides of the Seine. Some vestiges of this ancient enclosure still remain in the last century. Today only the memory of it is left, and here and there a tradition, the Baudets or Baudayer Gate, Port Bagoda. Little by little the tide of houses, always thrust from the centre of the city outwards, overflows, devours, wears away, and defaces this wall. Philippe Augustus makes a new dike for it. He imprisons Paris in a circular chain of great towers, both lofty and solid. For the period of more than a century the houses press upon each other, accumulate and raise their level in this basin, like water in a reservoir. They begin to deepen. They pile story upon story. They mount upon each other. They gush forth at the top, like all laterally compressed growth, and there is a rivalry as to which shall thrust its head above its neighbors for the sake of getting a little air. The street glows narrower and deeper. Every space is overwhelmed and disappears. The houses finally leap the wall of Philippe Augustus and scatter joyfully over the plain, without order and all askew, like runaways. They plant themselves squarely, cut themselves gardens from the fields, and take their ease. Beginning with 1367, the city spreads to such an extent into the suburbs that a new wall becomes necessary, particularly on the right bank. Charles V builds it. But a city like Paris is perpetually growing. It is only such cities that become capitals. They are funnels, into which all the geographical, political, moral, and intellectual watersheds of a country, all the natural slopes of a people, pour wells of civilization, so to speak, and also sewers, where commerce, industry, intelligence, population, all that is sap, all that is life, all that is the soul of a nation, filters and amasses unceasingly, drop by drop, century by century. So Charles V's wall suffered the fate of that of Philippe Augustus. At the end of the fifteenth century the Faubourg strides across it, passes beyond it, and runs farther. In the sixteenth it seems to retreat visibly, and to bury itself deeper and deeper in the old city, so thick had the new city already become outside of it. Thus, beginning with the fifteenth century, where our story finds us, Paris had already outgrown the three concentric circles of walls, which, from the time of Julian the Apostate, existed, so to speak, in germ in the Grand Châtelet and the Petit Châtelet. The mighty city had cracked in succession its four enclosures of walls, like a child grown too large for his garments of last year. Under Louis XI this sea of houses was seen to be pierced at intervals by several groups of ruined towers from the ancient wall, like the summits of hills in an inundation, like archipelagos of the old Paris submerged beneath the new. Since that time, Paris has undergone yet another transformation, unfortunately for our eyes, but it has passed only one more wall, that of Louis the Fifteenth, 
that miserable wall of mud and spittle, worthy of the king who built it, worthy of the poet who sung it, Le mur mirant, Paris rant Paris murmurant. The wall walling Paris makes Paris murmur. In the fifteenth century, Paris was still divided into three wholly distinct and separate towns, each having its own physiognomy, its own specialty, its manners, customs, privileges, and history. The city, the university, the town. The city, which occupied the island, was the most ancient, the smallest, and the mother of the other two, crowded in between them like, may we be pardoned the comparison, a little old woman between two large and handsome maidens. The university covered the left bank of the Seine, from the Tournelle to the Tour de Nesle, points which correspond in the Paris of today, the one to the wine-market, the other to the mint. Its wall included a large part of that plain where Julian had built his hot-baths. The hill of saint Genevieve was enclosed in it. The culminating point of this sweep of walls was the Papal Gate, that is to say, near the present site of the Pantheon. The town, which was the largest of the three fragments of Paris, held the right bank. Its quay, broken or interrupted in many places, ran along the Seine, from the Tour de Belly to the Tour de Bois, that is to say, from the place where the granary stands today to the present site of the Tuileries. These four points, where the Seine intersected the wall of the capital, the Tournelle and the Tour de Nesle on the right, and the Tour de Belly and the Tour de Bois on the left, were called preeminently the Four Towers of Paris. The town encroached still more extensively upon the fields than the university. The culminating point of the town wall, that of Charles V, was at the gates of Saint-Denis and Saint-Martin, whose situation has not been changed. As we have just said, each of these three great divisions of Paris was a town, but too special a town to be complete, a city which could not get along with the other two. Hence three entirely distinct aspects. Churches abounded in the city, palaces in the town, and colleges in the university. Neglecting here the originalities, of secondary importance in old Paris, and the capricious regulations regarding the public highways, we will say, from a general point of view, taking only masses and the whole group, in this chaos of communal jurisdictions, that the island belonged to the bishop, the right bank to the provost of the merchants, the left bank to the rector. Over all ruled the provost of Paris a royal, not a municipal office. The city had Notre-Dame, the town the Louvre, and the Hôtel de Ville, the university the Sorbonne. The town had the markets, the city the hospital, the university the Pré-Auclair. Offences committed by the scholars on the left bank were tried in the law courts on the island, and were punished on the right bank at Montfaucon, unless the rector, feeling the university to be strong and the king weak, intervened. For it was the students' privilege to be hanged on their own grounds. The greater part of these privileges, it may be noted in passing, and there were some even better than the above, had been extorted from the kings by revolts and mutinies. It is the course of things from time immemorial. The king only lets go when the people tear away there is an old charter which puts the matter naively. 
apropos of fidelity. Civibus fidelitas in reges, quoe tamen ale quotias, sediti onibus, interrupta multa peperit privileia. In the fifteenth century the Seine bathed five islands within the walls of Paris. Louvier Island, where there were then trees, and where there is no longer anything but wood, Le Isle aux Vaches and Le Isle Notre-Dame, both deserted, with the exception of one house, both fiefs of the bishop. In the seventeenth century a single island was formed out of these two, which was built upon and named L'Ile Saint-Louis. Lastly the city, and at its point, the little islet of the cow-tender, which was afterwards engulfed beneath the platform of the Pont Neuf. The city then had five bridges, three on the right, the Pont Notre-Dame and the Pont au Change of stone, the Pont au Monnier of wood, two on the left, the Petit Pont of stone and the Pont Saint-Michel of wood, all loaded with houses. The university had six gates, built by Philippe Augustus. There were, beginning with La Tournelle, the Porte Saint-Victor, the Porte Bordel, the Porte Papal, the Porte Saint-Jacques, the Porte Saint-Michel, the Porte Saint-Germain. The town had six gates, built by Charles V. Beginning with the Tour de Belly, they were the Porte Saint-Antoine, the Porte du Temple, the Porte Saint-Martin, the Porte Saint-Denis, the Porte Montmartre, the Porte Saint-Honoré. All these gates were strong and also handsome, which does not detract from strength. A large deep moat, with a brisk current during the high water of winter, bathed the base of the walled round Paris. The Seine furnished the water. At night the gates were shut, the river was barred at both ends of the city with huge iron chains, and Paris slept tranquilly. From a bird's-eye view these three burgs, the city, the town, and the university, each presented to the eye an inextricable skein of eccentrically tangled streets. Nevertheless, at first sight, one recognized the fact that these three fragments formed but one body. One immediately perceived three long parallel streets, unbroken, undisturbed, traversing, almost in a straight line, all three cities, from one end to the other. From north to south, perpendicularly to the same, which bound them together, mingled them, infused them in each other, poured and transfused the people incessantly from one to the other, and made one out of the three. The first of these streets ran from the Porte Saint-Martin. It was called the Rue Saint-Jacques in the university, Rue de la Jouverie in the city, Rue Saint-Martin in the town. It crossed the water twice, under the name of the Petit Pont and the Pont Notre-Dame. The second, which was called the Rue de la Harpe on the left bank, Rue de la Barillerie on the island, Rue Saint-Denis on the right bank, Pont Saint-Michel on one arm of the Seine, Pont au Change on the other, ran from the Porte Saint-Michel in the university to the Porte Saint-Denis in the town. However, under all these names there were but two streets, parent streets, generating streets, the two arteries of Paris. All the other veins of the triple city either derived their supply from them or emptied into them. Independently of these two principal streets, 
piercing Paris diametrically in its whole breadth from side to side, common to the entire capital, the city and the university had also each its own great special street, which ran lengthwise by them, parallel to the Seine, cutting, as it passed, at right angles the two arterial thoroughfares. Thus in the town one descended in a straight line from the Porte Saint-Antoine to the Porte Saint-Honoré, in the university from the Porte Saint-Victor to the Porte Saint-Germain. These two great thoroughfares intersected by the two first formed the canvas upon which reposed, knotted and crowded together on every hand, the labyrinthine network of the streets of Paris. In the incomprehensible plan of these streets, one distinguished likewise, on looking attentively, two clusters of great streets, like magnified sheaves of grain, one in the university, the other in the town, which spread out gradually from the bridges to the gates. Some traces of this geometrical plan still exist today. Now, what aspect did this whole present when, as viewed from the summit of the towers of Notre Dame in fourteen eighty two, that we shall try to describe. For the spectator who arrived panting upon that pinnacle, it was first a dazzling, confusing view of roofs, chimneys, streets, bridges, places, spires, bell towers. Everything struck your eye at once the carved gable, the pointed roof, the turrets suspended at the angles of the walls, the stone pyramids of the eleventh century, the slate obelisks of the fifteenth, the round, bare tower of the donjon keep, the square and fretted tower of the church, the great and the little, the massive and the aerial. The eye was, for a long time, wholly lost in this labyrinth where there was nothing which did not possess its originality, its reason, its genius, its beauty, nothing which did not proceed from art. Beginning with the smallest house, with its painted and carved front, with external beams, elliptical door, with projecting stories, to the Royal Louvre, which then had a colonnade of towers. But these are the principal masses which were then to be distinguished when the eye began to accustom itself to this tumult of edifices. In the first place, the city. The island of the city, as Sauval says, who, in spite of his confused medley, sometimes has such happy turns of expression. The island of the city is made like a great ship, stuck in the mud and run aground in the current near the centre of the Seine. We have just explained that, in the fifteenth century, this ship was anchored to the two banks of the river by five bridges. This form of a ship had also struck the heraldic scribes. For it is from that, and not from the siege by the Normans, that the ship which blazons the old shield of Paris comes, according to Favenne and Pasquier. For him who understands how to decipher them, armorial bearings are algebra, armorial bearings have a tongue. The whole history of the second half of the Middle Ages is written in armorial bearings. The first half is in the symbolism of the Roman churches. They are the hieroglyphics of feudalism, succeeding those of theocracy. Thus the city first presented itself to the eye, with its stern to the east and its prow to the west. Turning towards the prow, one had before one an innumerable flock of ancient roofs 
over which arched broadly the lead-covered apse of the Saint-Chapelle, like an elephant's haunches loaded with its tower. Only here, this tower was the most audacious, the most open, the most ornamented spire of cabinet-maker's work that ever let the sky peep through its cone of lace. In front of Notre-Dame, and very near at hand, three streets opened into the cathedral square, a fine square lined with ancient houses. Over the south side of this place bent the wrinkled and sullen façade of the Hôtel Dieu, and its roof which seemed covered with warts and pustules. Then, on the right and the left, to the east and west, within that wall of the city, which was yet so contracted, rose the bell-towers of its one-and-twenty churches, of every date, of every form, of every size, from the low and worm-eaten belfry of the Saint-Denis-du-Pas, to the slender needles of Saint-Pierre-aux-Boeufs and Saint-Landry. Behind Notre-Dame the cloister and its Gothic gallery spread out towards the north, on the south the half-Roman palace of the bishop, on the east the desert point of the terrain. In this throng of houses the eye also distinguished, by the lofty open-work mitres of stone which then crowned the roof itself, even the most elevated windows of the palace, the hotel given by the city under Charles the Sixth, to Juvenal de Ursin, a little farther on the pitched-covered sheds of the Palace Market. In still another quarter the new apse of the Saint-Germain-la-Vieux, lengthened in 1458 with a bit of the Rue aux Fab, and then in places a square crowded with people, a pillory erected at the corner of a street, a fine fragment of the pavement of Philippe Augustus, a magnificent flagging, grooved for the horse's feet in the middle of the road, and so badly replaced in the sixteenth century by the miserable cobblestones, called the pavement of the league, a deserted back courtyard, with one of those diaphanous staircase turrets, such as were erected in the fifteenth century, one of which is still to be seen in the Rue de Bourdonnais. Lastly, at the right of the Saint-Chapelle towards the west, the Palace de Justice, rested its group of towers at the edge of the water. The thickets of the King's Gardens, which covered the western point of the city, massed the island de Passeur. As for the water, from the summit of the towers of Notre-Dame one hardly saw it, on either side of the city. The Seine was hidden by bridges, the bridges by houses. And when the glance passed these bridges, whose roofs were visibly green, rendered mouldy before their time by the vapours of the water, if it was directed to the left, towards the university, the first edifice which struck it was a large, low sheaf of towers, the Petit Châtelet, whose yawning gate devoured the end of the Petit Pont. Then, if your view ran along the bank from east to west, from the Tournelle to the Tour de Nesle, there was a long cordon of houses, with carved beams, stained-glass windows, each story projecting over that beneath it an interminable zigzag of bourgeois gables, frequently interrupted by the mouth of a street, and from time to time also by the front or angle of a huge stone mansion, planted at its ease with courts and gardens, wings and detached buildings, amid this populace of crowded and narrow houses, like a grand gentleman among a throng of rustics. There were five or six of these mansions on the quay, from the house of Lorraine, 
which shared with the Bernardins the grand enclosure adjoining the Tournelle to the Hôtel de Nestlé, whose principal tower ended Paris, and whose pointed roofs were in a position during three months of the year to encroach, with their black triangles, upon the scarlet disk of the setting sun. This side of the Seine was, however, the last mercantile of the two. Students furnished more of a crowd and more noise there than artisans, and there was not, properly speaking, any key except from the Pont Saint-Michel to the Tour de Nestlé. The rest of the bank of the Seine was now a naked strand, the same as beyond the Bernardin. Again a throng of houses, standing with their feet in the water, as between the two bridges. There was a great uproar of laundresses. They screamed and talked and sang from morning till night along the beach, and beat a great deal of linen there, just as in our day. This is not the least of the gaieties of Paris. The university presented a dense mass to the eye. From one end to the other it was homogeneous and compact. The thousand roofs, dense, angular, clinging to each other, composed nearly all of the same geometrical element, offered, when viewed from above, the aspect of a crystallization of the same substance. The capricious ravine of streets did not cut this block of houses into two disproportionate slices. The forty-two colleges were scattered about in a fairly equal manner, and there were some everywhere. The amusingly varied crests of these beautiful edifices were the product of the same art as the simple roofs which they overshot, and were actually only a multiplication of the square or the cube of the same geometrical figure. Hence they complicated the whole effect without disturbing it, completed without overloading it. Geometry is harmony. Some fine mansions here and there made magnificent outlines against the picturesque attics of the left bank. The House of Nevers, the House of Rome, the House of Rhymes, which have disappeared. The Hôtel du Cluny, which still exists, for the consolation of the artist, and whose tower was so stupidly deprived of its crown a few years ago. Close to Cluny, that Roman palace, with fine round arches, were once the hot baths of Julian. There were a great many abbeys, of a beauty more devout, of a grandeur more solemn than the mansions, but not less beautiful, not less grand. Those which first caught the eye were the Bernandins, with their three bell-towers. saint jean whose square tower, which still exists, makes us regret the rest. The Sorbonne, half-college, half-monastery, of which so admirable a nave survives. The fine quadrilateral cloister of the Maturin, its neighbor the cloister of Saint-Benoît, within whose walls they have had time to cobble up a theatre, between the seventh and eighth editions of this book. The Cordelier, with their three enormous adjacent gables. The Augustin, whose graceful spire formed, after the Tour de Nestlé, the second denticulation of this side of Paris, starting from the west. The colleges, which are in fact the intermediate ring between the cloister and the world, hold the middle position in the monumental series between the hotel and the abbeys, with a severity full of elegance, sculpture less giddy than the palaces, and architecture less severe than the convents. Unfortunately, hardly anything remains of these monuments, 
where Gothic art combined with so just a balance, richness and economy. The churches, and they were numerous and splendid in the university, and they were graded there also in all the ages of architecture, from the round arches of San Julian to the pointed arches of Saint Severin. The churches dominated the whole. And, like one harmony more in this mass of harmonies, they pierced in quick succession the multiple open work of the gables with slashed spires, with open work bell towers with slender pinnacles, whose line was also only a magnificent exaggeration of the acute angle of the roofs. The ground of the university was hilly. Mount saint javier formed an enormous mound to the south, and it was a sight to see from the summit of Notre-Dame how that throng of narrow and tortuous streets, today the Latin Quarter, whose bunches of houses, which spread out in every direction from the top of this eminence, precipitated themselves in disorder, and almost perpendicularly down its flanks, nearly to the water's edge, having the air, some of falling, others of clambering up again, and all of holding to one another. A continual flux of a thousand black points, which passed each other on the pavements, made everything move before the eyes. It was the populace seen thus from aloft and afar. Lastly, in the intervals of these roofs, of these spires, of these accidents of numberless edifices, which bent and writhed and jagged in so eccentric a manner the extreme line of the university, one caught a glimpse, here and there, of a great expanse of moss-grown wall, a thick round tower, a crenellated city gate, shadowing forth the fortress. It was the wall of Philippe Augustus. Beyond, the fields gleamed green. Beyond fled the roads, along which were scattered a few more suburban houses, which became more infrequent as they became more distant. Some of these faubourgs were important. There were, first, starting from La Tournelle, the Bourg Saint-Victor, with its one arch-bridge over the Bièvre, its abbey where one could read the epitaph of Louis Le Gros, Epitaphium Ludovici Grossi, and its church with an octagonal spire, flanked with four little bell-towers of the eleventh century. A similar one can be seen at Etamp. It is not yet destroyed. Next, the Bourg Saint-Marceau, which already had three churches and one convent. Then, leaving the mill of the Gobelins and its four white walls on the left, there was the Faubourg Saint-Jacques, with the beautiful carved cross in its square. The church of Saint-Jacques du Hopin, which was then Gothic, pointed, charming. Saint-Marois, a fine nave of the fourteenth century, which Napoleon turned into a hayloft. Notre-Dame-de-Champs, where there were Byzantine mosaics. Lastly, after having left behind, full in the country, the monastery des Chartreux, a rich edifice contemporary with the Palais de Justice, with its little garden divided into compartments, and the haunted ruins of Vauvert, the eye fell to the west upon the three Roman spires of Saint-Germain-des-Prés. The Bourg Saint-Germain, already a large community, formed fifteen or twenty streets in the rear. The pointed bell of Saint-Sulpice marked one corner of the town. Close beside it one described the quadrilateral enclosure of the fair of Saint-Germain, where the market is situated today. 
Then the abbot's pillory, a pretty little round tower, well capped with a leaden cone. The brickyard was further on, and the rue de Four, which led to the common bakehouse, and the mill on its hillock, and the lazar house, a tiny house, isolated and half-seen. But that which attracted the eye most of all, and fixed it for a long time on that point, was the abbey itself. It is certain that this monastery, which had a grand air, both as a church and as a seigneury, that a abatial palace where the bishops of Paris counted themselves happy if they could pass the night, that refectory upon which the architect had bestowed the air, the beauty, and the rose window of a cathedral, that elegant chapel of the Virgin, that monumental dormitory, those vast gardens, that portcullis, that drawbridge, that envelope of battlements which notched to the eye the verdure of the surrounding meadows, those courtyards where gleamed men-at-arms intermingled with golden copes. The whole grouped and clustered about three lofty spires with round arches, well planted upon a Gothic apse, made a magnificent figure against the horizon. When, at length, after having contemplated the university for a long time, you turned towards the right bank, towards the town, the character of the spectacle was abruptly altered. The town, in fact much larger than the university, was also less of a unit. At the first glance one saw that it was divided into many masses, singularly distinct. First, to the eastward, in that part of the town which still takes its name from the marsh where the Camulogenet entangled Caesar, was a pile of palaces. The block extended to the very water's edge. Four almost contiguous hôtels, Jouet, Sans, Barbeau, the House of the Queen, mirrored their slate peaks, broken their slender turrets in the same. These four edifices filled the space from the Rue des Nonandières to the Abbey of the Celestins, whose spire gracefully relieved their line of gables and battlements. A few miserable greenish hovels, hanging over the water in front of the sumptuous hotel, did not prevent one from seeing the fine angles of their façades, their large square windows with stone mullions, their pointed porches overloaded with statues, the vivid outlines of their walls, always clear-cut, and all those charming accidents of architecture which cause Gothic art to have the air of beginning in its combinations afresh with every monument. Behind these palaces, extended in all directions, now broken, fenced in, battlemented like a citadel, now veiled by great trees like a Carthusian convent, the immense and multiform enclosure of that miraculous Hôtel de Saint-Paul, where the King of France possessed the means of lodging superbly two and twenty princes of the rank of the Dauphin and the Duke of Burgundy, with their domestics and their suites, without counting the great lords, and the emperor when he came to view Paris, and the lions, who had their separate hotel at the Royal Hotel. Let us say here that a prince's apartment was then composed of never less than eleven large rooms, from the chamber of state to the oratory, not to mention the galleries, baths, vapor-baths, and other superfluous places, with which each apartment was provided not to mention the private gardens for each of the king's guests, not to mention the kitchens, the cellars, 
the domestic offices, the general refectories of the house, the poultry yards where there were twenty-two general laboratories, from the bakehouses to the wine cellars, games of a thousand sorts, malls, tennis, and riding at the ring, aviaries, fish-ponds, menageries, stables, barns, libraries, arsenals, and foundries. This was what a king's palace, a Louvre, a Hôtel de Saint-Paul was then, a city within a city. From the tower where we are placed, the Hôtel Saint-Paul, almost half hidden by the four great houses of which we have just spoken, was still very considerable and very marvellous to see. One could there distinguish, very well, though cleverly united with the principal building by long galleries, decked with painted glass and slender columns, the three hôtels which Charles V had amalgamated with his palace. The Hôtel du Petit Musset, with the airy balustrade which formed a graceful border to its roof. The Hôtel of the Abbe de Saint-Maur, having the vanity of a stronghold, a great tower, machicolations, loopholes, iron gratings, and over the large Saxon door, the armorial bearings of the abbe between the two mortises of the drawbridge. The hotel of the Comte de Tempe, whose dungeon keep, ruined at its summit, was rounded and notched like a coxcomb. Here and there, three or four ancient oaks, forming a tuft together like enormous cauliflowers. Gambles of swans in the clear water of the fish-ponds, all in folds of light and shade many courtyards of which one beheld picturesque bits. The Hôtel of the Lyon, with its low-pointed arches on short Saxon pillars, its iron gratings and its perpetual roar. Shooting up above the whole, the scale-ornamented spire of the Ave Maria. On the left, the house of the Provost of Paris, flanked by four small towers, delicately grooved in the middle. At the extremity, the Hôtel Saint-Paul, properly speaking, with its multiplied façades, its successive enrichments from the time of Charles V, the hybrid excrescences with which the fancy of the architects had loaded it during the last two centuries, with all the apses of its chapels, all the gables of its galleries, a thousand weathercocks for the four winds, and its two lofty contiguous towers, whose conical roof, surrounded by battlements at its base, looked like those pointed caps which have their edges turned up. Continuing to mount the stories of this amphitheatre of palaces spread out afar upon the ground, after crossing a deep ravine hollowed out of the roofs in the town, which marked the passage of the Rue Saint-Antoine, the eye reached the house of Angoulême, a vast construction of many epochs, where there were perfectly new and very white parts, which melted no better into the whole than a red patch on a blue doublet. Nevertheless, the remarkably pointed and lofty roof of the modern palace, bristling with carved eaves, covered with sheets of lead, where coiled a thousand fantastic arabesques of sparkling incrustations of gilded bronze, that roof, so curiously damascened, darted upwards gracefully from the midst of the brown ruins of the ancient edifice whose huge and ancient towers, rounded by age like casks, sinking together with old age, and rending themselves from top to bottom, 
resembled great bellies unbuttoned. Behind rose the forest of spires of the Palais de Tournelle. Not a view in the world, either at Chambord or at the Alhambra, is more magic, more aerial, more enchanting than that thicket of spires, tiny bell-towers, chimneys, weather-vanes, winding staircases, lanterns through which the daylight makes its way, which seem to cut out at a blow pavilions, spindle-shaped turrets, or, as they were called then, tournelles, all differing in form, in height, and attitude. One would have pronounced it a gigantic stone chessboard. To the right of the tournelle, that truss of enormous towers, black as ink, running into each other and tied, as it were, by a circular moat. That dungeon-keep, much more pierced with loopholes than with windows. That drawbridge, always raised. That portcullis, always lowered, is the Bastille. Those sorts of black beaks which project from between the battlements, and which you take from a distance to be cave-spouts, are cannons. Beneath them, at the foot of the formidable edifice, behold the Porte Saint-Antoine buried between its two towers. Beyond the Tournelle, as far as the wall of Charles V, spread out, with rich compartments of verdure and of flowers, a velvet carpet of cultivated land and royal parks, in the midst of which one recognized by its labyrinth of trees and alleys the famous Daedalus garden which Louis XI had given to Quatier. The doctor's observatory rose above the labyrinth like a great isolated column, with a tiny house for a capital. Terrible astrologies took place in that laboratory. There today is the Place Royale. As we have just said, the quarter of the palace, of which we have just endeavored to give the reader some idea by indicating only the chief points, filled the angle which Charles V's wall made with the Seine on the east. The center of the town was occupied by a pile of houses for the populace. It was there, in fact, that the three bridges disgorged upon the right bank, and the bridges led to the building of houses rather than palaces. That congregation of bourgeois habitations, pressed together like cells in a hive, had a beauty of its own. It is with the roofs of a capital as with the waves of the sea. They are grand. First the streets, crossed and entangled, forming a hundred amusing figures in the block. Around the marketplace it was like a star with a thousand rays. The rues Saint-Denis and Saint-Martin, with their innumerable ramifications, rose one after the other, like trees intertwining their branches. And then the tortuous lines, the rues de la Platrerie, de la Verrerie, de la Tisserandrie, etc., meandered over all. There were also fine edifices which pierced the petrified undulations of that sea of gables. At the head of the Pont aux Changeurs, behind which one beheld the Seine foaming beneath the wheels of the Pont aux Moniers, there was the Chalolais, no longer a Roman tower, as under Julian the Apostate, but a feudal tower of the thirteenth century, and of a stone so hard that the pickaxe could not break away so much as the thickness of the fist in a space of three hours. There was the rich square bell-tower of Saint-Jacques de la Boucherie, with its angles all frothing with carvings, already admirable, 
although it was not finished in the fifteenth century. It lacked in particular the four monsters, which, still perched today on the corners of its roof, have the air of so many sphinxes who are propounding to new Paris the riddle of the ancient Paris. Rayot, the sculptor, only placed them in position in 1526, and received twenty francs for his pains. There was the Maison aux Piliers, the pillar-house, opening upon the Place de Greve, of which we have given the reader some idea. There was Saint-Gervais, which a front in good taste has since spoiled. Sainte-Marie, whose ancient pointed arches were still almost round arches. Saint-Jean, whose magnificent spire was proverbial. There were twenty other monuments which did not disdain to bury their wonders in that chaos of black, deep, narrow streets. Add the crosses of carved stone, more lavishly scattered through the squares than even the gibbets. The cemetery of the innocents, whose architectural wall could be seen in the distance above the roofs. The pillory of the markets, whose top was visible between two chimneys of the Rue de la Cossonnerie. The latter of the Croix du Trahois, in its square always black with people. The circular buildings of the Wheat Mart the fragments of Philippe Augustus's ancient wall, which could be made out here and there, drowned among the houses, its towers gnawed by ivy, its gates in ruins, with crumbling and deformed stretches of wall. The quay, with its thousand shops, and its bloody knacker's yards. The Seine, encumbered with boats, from the Port of Foin to Port Levesque, and you will have a confused picture of what the central trapezium of the town was like in 1482. With these two quarters, one of hotel, the other of houses, the third feature of aspect presented by the city was a long zone of abbeys, which boarded it in nearly the whole of its circumference, from the rising to the setting sun, and behind the circle of fortifications which hemmed in Paris, formed a second interior enclosure of convents and chapels. Thus, immediately adjoining the Parc de Tournelles, between the Rue Saint-Etoine and the Vielle Rue de Temple, there stood St. Catherine, with its immense cultivated lands, which were terminated only by the wall of Paris. Between the old and the new Rue de Temple there was the Temple, a sinister group of towers, lofty, erect, and isolated in the middle of a vast battlement enclosure. Between the Rue Neuve de Temple and the Rue Saint-Martin there was the Abbey of Saint-Martin, in the midst of its gardens a superb fortified church, whose girdle of towers, whose diadem of bell-towers, yielded in force and splendor only to Saint-Germain-des-Prés. Between the Rue Saint-Martin and the Rue Saint-Denis spread the enclosure of the Trinité. Lastly, between the Rue Saint-Denis and the Rue Montorguet stood the Filet Dieu. On one side the rotting roofs and unpaved enclosure of the Cour de Miracle could be descried. It was the sole profane ring which was linked to that devout chain of convents. Finally, the fourth compartment, which stretched itself out in the agglomeration of the roofs on the right bank, and which occupied the western angle of the enclosure and the banks of the river downstream, 
was a fresh cluster of palaces and hotel pressed close about the base of the Louvre. This old Louvre of Philippe Augustus, that immense edifice whose great tower rallied about it three and twenty chief towers, not to reckon the lesser towers, seemed from a distance to be enshrined in the Gothic roofs of the Hôtel de Alençon and the Petit Bourbon. This hydra of towers, giant guardian of Paris, with its four-and-twenty heads, always erect, with its monstrous haunches, loaded or scaled with slates, and all streaming with metallic reflections, terminated with wonderful effect the configuration of the town towards the west. Thus an immense block, which the Romans called Iusula, or island, of bourgeois houses, flanked on the right and the left by two blocks of palaces, crowned, the one by the Louvre, the other by the Tournelle, bordered on the north by a long girdle of abbeys and cultivated enclosures, all amalgamated and melted together in one view. Upon these thousands of edifices, whose tiled and slated roofs outlined upon each other so many fantastic chains, the bell-towers, tattooed, fluted, and ornamented with twisted bands, of the four-and-forty churches on the right bank, myriads of cross-streets, for boundary on one side an enclosure of lofty walls with square towers, that of the university had round towers, on the other the same, cut by bridges, and bearing on its bosom a multitude of boats. Behold the town of Paris in the fifteenth century. Beyond the walls, several suburban villages pressed close about the gates, but less numerous and more scattered than those of the university. Behind the Bastille there were twenty hovels clustered round the curious sculptures of the Croix Faubin and the flying buttresses of the Abbey of Saint-Antoine-des-Champs. Then Popincourt, lost amid wheat-fields. Then La Courtie, a merry village of wine-shops. The hamlet of Saint-Laurent, with its church, whose bell-tower, from afar, seemed to add itself to the pointed towers of the Port Saint-Martin. The Faubourg Saint-Denis, with the vast enclosure of Saint-Ladre. Beyond the Montmartre gate, the Grange Batelier, encircled with white walls. Behind it, with its chalky slopes, Montmartre, which had then almost as many churches as windmills, and which has kept only the windmills, for society no longer demands anything but bread for the body. Lastly, beyond the Louvre, the Faubourg Saint-Honoré, already considerable at that time, could be seen stretching away into the fields, and Petit Proton gleaming green, and the Marché aux Porceaux spreading abroad, in whose centre swelled the horrible apparatus used for boiling counterfeiters. Between La Courtie and Saint-Laurent, your eye had already noticed, on the summit of an eminence crouching amid desert plains, a sort of edifice which resembled from a distance a ruined colonnade, mounted upon a basement with its foundation laid bare. This was neither a Parthenon nor a temple of the Olympian Jupiter. It was Montfaucon. Now, if the enumeration of so many edifices, summary as we have endeavoured to make it, has not shattered in the reader's mind the general image of old Paris, 
as we have constructed it, we will recapitulate it in a few words. In the center, the island of the city, resembling as to form an enormous tortoise, and throwing out its bridges with tiles for scales, like legs from beneath its grey shell of roofs. On the left, the monolithic trapezium, firm, dense, bristling, of the university. On the right, the vast semicircle of the town, much more intermixed with gardens and monuments. The three blocks, city, university, and town, marbled with innumerable streets. Across all, the Seine, foster-mother Seine, as says Father de Bruve, blocked with islands, bridges, and boats. All about an immense plain, patched with a thousand sorts of cultivated plots, sown with fine villages. On the left, Issy, Vanvray, Vaugirard, Montrouge, Gentilly, with its round tower and its square tower, etc. On the right, twenty others, from Conflans to Ville-l'Evêque. On the horizon, a border of hills arranged in a circle like the rim of the basin. Finally, far away to the east, Vincennes and its seven quadrangular towers. To the south, Bicetre and its pointed turrets. To the north, Saint-Denis and its spire. To the west, Saint-Cloud and its dungeon keep. Such was the Paris which the ravens, who lived in 1482, beheld from the summits of the towers of Notre-Dame. Nevertheless, Voltaire said of this city that, before Louis the Fourteenth, it possessed but four fine monuments, the Dome of the Sorbonne, the Val de Grasse, the modern Louvre, and, I know not what the fourth was, the Luxembourg, perhaps. Fortunately, Voltaire was the author of Candide in spite of this, and in spite of this, he is, among all the men who have followed each other in the long series of humanity, the one who has best possessed the diabolical laugh. Moreover, this proves that one can be a fine genius, and yet understand nothing of an art to which one does not belong. Did not Moliere imagine that he was doing Raphael and Michelangelo a very great honor by calling them those mignards of their age? Let us return to Paris and to the fifteenth century. It was not then merely a handsome city. It was a homogeneous city, an architectural and historical product of the Middle Ages, a chronicle in stone. It was a city formed of two layers only, the Romanesque layer and the Gothic layer, for the Roman layer had disappeared long before, with the exception of the hot baths of Julian, where it still pierced through the thick crust of the Middle Ages. As for the Celtic layer, no specimens were any longer to be found, even when sinking wells. Fifty years later, when the Renaissance began to mingle with this unity which was so severe and yet so varied, the dazzling luxury of its fantasies and systems, its debasements of Roman round arches, Greek columns, and Gothic bases, its sculpture which was so tender and so ideal, its peculiar taste for arabesques and acanthus leaves, its architectural paganism, contemporary with Luther, Paris was perhaps still more beautiful, although less harmonious to the eye and to the thought. But this splendid moment lasted only for a short time. The Renaissance was not impartial. It did not content itself with building. It wished to destroy. It is true that it required the room. Thus Gothic Paris was complete only for a moment. 
Saint-Jacques de la Boucherie had barely been completed when the demolition of the old Louvre was begun. After that, the great city became more disfigured every day. Gothic Paris, beneath which Roman Paris was effaced, was effaced in its turn. But can anyone say what Paris has replaced it? There is the Paris of Catherine de' Medici's at the Tuileries, the Paris of Henri II at the Hôtel de Ville, two edifices still in fine taste. The Paris of Henri IV, at the Place Royale, facades of brick with stone corners and slated roofs, tri-coloured houses. The Paris of Louis XIII at the Val de Grasse, a crushed and squat architecture, with vaults like basket-handles, and something indescribably pot-bellied in the column and thick-set in the dome. The Paris of Louis XIV in the Invalide, grand, rich, gilded, cold. The Paris of Louis XV in Saint-Sulpice, volutes, knots of ribbon, clouds, vermicelli, and chicory leaves, all in stone. The Paris of Louis XVI in the Pantheon, Saint Peter of Rome, badly copied, the edifice is awkwardly heaped together, which has not amended its lines. The Paris of the Republic, in the School of Medicine, a poor Greek and Roman taste, which resembles the Colosseum or the Parthenon as the constitution of the year three resembles the laws of Minos. It is called in architecture the Mesidor taste. The Paris of Napoleon and the Place Vendôme. This one is sublime, a column of bronze made of cannons. The Paris of the Restoration at the Bourse, a very white colonnade supporting a very smooth frieze. The whole is square and cost twenty millions. To each of these characteristic monuments there is attached by a similarity of taste, fashion, and attitude a certain number of houses, scattered about in different quarters, and which the eyes of the connoisseur easily distinguishes and furnishes with a date. When one knows how to look, one finds the spirit of a century, and the physiognomy of a king, even in the knocker on a door. The Paris of the present day has, then, no general physiognomy. It is a collection of specimens of many centuries, and the finest have disappeared. The capital grows only in houses, and what houses! At the rate at which Paris is now proceeding, it will renew itself every fifty years. Thus the historical significance of its architecture is being effaced every day. Monuments are becoming rarer and rarer, and one seems to see them gradually engulfed by the flood of houses. Our fathers had a Paris of stone, our sons will have one of plaster. So far as the modern monuments of new Paris are concerned, we would gladly be excused from mentioning them. It is not that we do not admire them as they deserve. The saint jean of Monsieur Soufflot is certainly the finest Savoy cake that has ever been made in stone. The Palace of the Legion of Honor is also a very distinguished bit of pastry. The Dome of the Wheat Market is an English jockey-cap on a grand scale. The towers of Saint-Sulpice are two huge clarinets, and the form is as good as any other. The telegraph, contorted and grimacing, forms an admirable accident upon their roofs. Saint-Roche has a door which, for magnificence, is comparable only to that of Saint-Thomas d'Aquin. It has also a crucifixion in high relief in a cellar with a sun of gilded wood. 
these things are fairly marvellous. The lantern of the labyrinth of the Jardin des Plantes is also very ingenious. As for the palace of the Bourse, which is Greek as to its colonnade, Roman in the round arches of its doors and windows, of the Renaissance by virtue of its flattened vault, it is indubitably a very correct and very pure monument. The proof is that it is crowned with an attic, such as was never seen in Athens, a beautiful, straight line, gracefully broken here and there by stovepipes. Let us add that, if it is according to rule that the architecture of a building should be adapted to its purpose, in such a manner that this purpose shall be immediately apparent from the mere aspect of the building, one cannot be too much amazed at a structure which might be indifferently. The palace of a king, a chamber of communes, a town hall, a college, a riding-school, an academy, a warehouse, a courthouse, a museum, a barracks, a sepulchre, a temple, or a theatre. However, it is an exchange. An edifice ought to be, moreover, suitable to the climate. This one is evidently constructed expressly for our cold and rainy skies. It has a roof almost as flat as roofs in the east, which involves sweeping the roof in winter when it snows, and, of course, roofs are made to be swept. As for its purpose, of which we just spoke, it fulfills it to a marvel. It is a bourse in France, as it would have been a temple in Greece. It is true that the architect was at a good deal of trouble to conceal the clock-face, which would have destroyed the purity of the fine lines of the façade, but on the other hand we have that colonnade which circles round the edifice, and under which, on days of high religious ceremony, the theories of the stockbrokers and the courtiers of the commerce can be developed so majestically. These are very superb structures. Let us add a quantity of fine, amusing, and varied streets, like the Rue de Rivoli, and I do not despair of Paris presenting to the eye, when viewed from a balloon, that richness of line, that opulence of detail, that diversity of aspect, that grandiose something in the simple and unexpected in the beautiful, which characterizes a checkerboard. However admirable as the Paris of today may seem to you, reconstruct the Paris of the fifteenth century, call it up before you in thought, look at that sky athwart that surprising forest of spires, towers, and belfries, spread out in the centre of the city, tear away at the point of the islands, fold at the arches of the bridges, the Seine, with its broad green and yellow expanses, more variable than the skin of a serpent project clearly against an azure horizon the Gothic profile of this ancient Paris. Make its contour float in a winter's mist which clings to its numerous chimneys. Drown it in profound night and watch the odd play of lights and shadows in that sombre labyrinth of edifices. Cast upon it a ray of light which shall vaguely outline it and cause to emerge from the fog the great heads of the towers or take that black silhouette again, enliven with shadow the thousand acute angles of the spires and gables, and make it start out more toothed than a shark's jaw against a copper-colored western sky, and then compare. And if you wish to receive of the ancient city an impression with which the modern one can no longer furnish you, climb, on the morning of some grand festival beneath the rising sun of Easter or of Pentecost, climb upon some elevated point, whence you command the entire capital, 
and be present at the awakening of the chimes. Behold, at a signal given from heaven, for it is the sun which gives it, all those churches quiver simultaneously. First come scattered strokes, running from one church to another, as when musicians give warning that they are about to begin. Then, all at once, behold! For it seems at times as though the ear also possessed a sight of its own. Behold, rising from each bell-tower, something like a column of sound, a cloud of harmony. First the vibration of each bell mounts straight upwards, pure and, so to speak, isolated from the others, into the splendid morning sky. Then, little by little, as they swell they melt together, mingle, are lost in each other, and amalgamate in a magnificent concert. It is no longer anything but a mass of sonorous vibrations, incessantly sent forth from the numerous belfries, floats, undulates, bounds, whirls over the city, prolongs far beyond the horizon the deafening circle of its oscillations. Nevertheless, this sea of harmony is not chaos. Great and profound as it is, it is not lost in its transparency. You behold the windings of each group of notes which escapes from the belfries. You can follow the dialogue, by turns grave and shrill, of the treble and the bass. You can see the octaves leap from one tower to another. You watch them spring forth, winged, light, and whistling from the silver bell to fall, broken and limping, from the bell of wood. You admire in their midst the rich gamut which incessantly ascends and reascends the seven bells of St. Eustache. You see light and rapid notes running across it, executing three or four luminous zigzags, and vanishing like flashes of lightning. Yonder is the abbey of St. Martin, a shrill, cracked singer. Here the gruff and gloomy voice of the Bastille, at the other end the great tower of the Louvre, with its base. The royal chime of the palace scatters on all sides, and without relaxation resplendent trills, upon which fall, at regular intervals, the heavy strokes from the belfry of Notre-Dame, which makes them sparkle like the anvil under the hammer. At intervals you behold the passage of sounds of all forms which come from the triple peal of Saint-Germain-des-Prés. Then again, from time to time, this mass of sublime noises opens and gives passage to the beats of the Ave Maria, which bursts forth and sparkles like an aigrette of stars. Below, in the very depths of the concert, you confusedly distinguish the interior chanting of the churches, which exhales through the vibrating pores of their vaulted roofs. Assuredly, this is an opera which it is worth the trouble of listening to. Ordinarily, the noise which escapes from Paris by day is the city speaking. By night, it is the city breathing. In this case, it is the city singing. Lend an ear, then, to this concert of bell-towers. Spread over all the murmur of half a million men, the eternal plaint of the river, the infinite breathings of the wind the grave and distant quartet of the four forests arranged upon the hills, on the horizon like immense stacks of organ-pipes. Extinguish, as in a half-shade, all that is too hoarse and too shrill about the centre chime, 
and say whether you know anything in the world more rich and joyful, more golden, more dazzling, than this tumult of bells and chimes, than this furnace of music, than these ten thousand brazen voices chanting simultaneously in the flutes of stone, three hundred feet high, than this city which is no longer anything but an orchestra, than this symphony which produces the noise of a tempest. End of Book Three, Chapter Two. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.